0: Hello and welcome to The James Zander Trip, where we dive into spirituality, psychedelics, altered states of consciousness, the nature of reality, and how we can bring all of this down to earth to improve our mind, connect with our heart, and up-level our relationship with life. Joining me today is Charles Morgan. When I met Charles, I instantly felt a kinship to him because he understood the One Billion Humans mission, my mission to unite the planet with the help of psychedelic medicine, And as I got to know him, I realized this is a really fascinating individual who has a wide breadth of experience across so many different domains. He was raised by a Chigon master, graduated from MIT, trained with the last living student of Swami Darendra Brahmachari. He has a background in neuroscience, and he's also got a background in the venture capital world. So it's this fascinating mix of being in the cutthroat business environment for many years, and then having this spiritual awakening and going on this wild spiritual journey that involves breathwork, psychedelics, kundalini yoga, shifting timelines and dimensions, and so much more. So without further ado, Charles Morgan, welcome to the James Zander trip.
1: Oh, James, what a, what a beautiful introduction. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited for our conversation. And yeah, I'm just really excited for the mission that you have wholeheartedly thrown yourself into because... It was you know just a passing thought that I had when I was younger, that oh my goodness, like the like the experience that I had in my my first couple of mushroom trips, and i I really had this idea, and i I remember thinking about it and talking about it with my friends in college, but then life, you know life just happened, and like hearing you at that you know beautiful villa uh in Chenggu uh, in your introduction, say that sentence i it was like. It was like the timeline just collapsed for me. And I was like, oh, my God, (laughs) I love that. (laughs) It was it was like, you know, um, yeah, like with like like almost like inception, like a dream within a dream. When you remember that you were dreaming and you were like on the wrong path for a while, and you're like, oh, my gosh, this person will like this person is the vehicle, you know, and I I have great respect for you and what you're what you're doing. And I hope that I can be a, a positive force in helping you make it true. It was so cool when you came up
0: after the introductions and you're like, I had the same idea. And I was like, people have told me it's a cool mission, but you're the first person that said, I've had the same resonance that I received the same download Mm -hmm. from the universe. And Mm -hmm. that's really special.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, I mean, I wouldn't say that I had a download. I just had I was like, oh, what would happen if a critical mass of people on the planet, you know, actually managed to check their own ego in a deeply emotional way? and?" then it was gone, you know, (laughs) but like you, you, you are putting it into reality and I still believe it will work. And I'm here to add my little, um, flavor, uh, to, to hopefully bring the the community that we're putting together behind, uh, the book, don't punk out and behind the organization about the, the big amygdala energy world Alliance. And, you know, this, this, this stuff that we're working with in terms of, you know, everything that you talked about in your intro, you know, spirituality, Mm -hmm. Altered states of consciousness, psychedelics, you know, all of it is in the interest of building a better world. Yeah. And and I joke about this sometimes at cocktail parties. But, you know, if you're not interested in building a better world, then I kind of don't have anything to say to you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You want to be surrounded by people on a mission. The right mission. Because there are some people that have bad missions. You know, there's some people whose mission is to make a billion dollars. There's some people whose mission it is to uh, uh, accelerate the advent of transhumanism. You know, there's some people who are on a mission to uh, you know, make a billion dollars on uh, commercializing uh, direct-to-consumer mRNA technology. It's like, and I think all of these things, um, not all of them, but many people's missions uh, fall into. The fallacy of hubris. How do you
0: tell if your mission is falling in that fallacy?
1: Oh, easy, easy. Uh, The definition of hubris in terms of the the original Greek mythology stories is when a human believes that they can challenge the gods.
0: Mm. So when we talk about transhumanism and AI, for example, or people implanting chips into their brain, what are your thoughts on that? I'd be really curious to hear why that mission is is hubris? I think
1: it's driven by fear. Of death? Yes. It's driven by fear of death that comes from uh, an unfortunate misunderstanding of the role of life. And perhaps it's because I was raised uh, in a Chinese household and you know so like my mother's Chinese my father's American and so I have these two sides and in you know it sounds wild to say it but uh, in extremely deep states of meditation I can actually sense the two parts of my genetic code uh fighting each other's neuroses oh wow right there's the Anglo-Saxon neuroses from my Welsh lineage there's the Chinese neuroses from the that lineage and Both of these cultures are now meeting in the middle of the world, uh, meeting in the face of globalization. And there are so many medium tier problems that people are trying to solve. And I think these medium tier problems will only continue to be replaced like the head of Hydra. Mm -hmm. I like the story from from, from Hercules, you know, you chop down a head or it's replaced by three. You chop down a head, it's replaced by three. It's only until you get to the, the final immortal head that you can actually slay the beast. And I believe that this final immortal head, when it comes to deciding what mission to dedicate your life to, comes down to peace. Mm. Immortality won't give you peace. It just gives you more time to keep solving problems. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I think this was what uh this is how Buddha beat the game. It's like oh, money. Power, fame, <laughs> sex—you mm-hmm. can have all that. You can have it. I got peace of mind. Yeah, my currency is infinity. The thing with
0: peace is it doesn't sound sexy to people.
1: Ah, oh, well, that's because uh, you need to talk about it in a sexy way. Right? <laughs> that's why I brought you on. <laughs> you need to make it sexy. You need, make, you need to make it. You need to make it cool, right? And you know, the, the thing that we spent so much of our, our first night together talking about. Uh, you know, like I didn't, I didn't come up with any ideas. I, I'm a, a self-proclaimed regurgitator, but I do have a certain comedic flavor. I do have a certain style. You have a way with words. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, the, the, they, they say that uh, the people who are obsessed with words are the ones that find it hardest to communicate. So I think that's where I started. I started from a place of being an extremely introverted kid that was diagnosed with ADHD that was smashing the math tests you know like I, I like I, I was an electrical engineer and material scientist that would spend 12 hours in the lab with my oscilloscope perfectly happy you know it, and I chose that direction because I learned very early on that it was so difficult for me to communicate mm. and so to to kind of do go on the journey that I've gone on to end up in this, in this room with you saying that I have a way with words. It's like, thank you. (laughs) Thank you truly because I spent most of my life without it. And I hope that I can do my part in terms of making peace of mind, not only an attractive thing, but an attainable thing. Mm. And that's where I believe the transhumanists and the longevity people are missing the biggest picture. They think the biggest picture is to cure the disease of death, Mm. not realizing that if you did such a thing, then your soul would be trapped in the prison of this physical body forever, Mm -hmm. right? And perhaps that comes from, you know, they don't believe as I believe uh, in reincarnation, they don't believe in multiple timelines, they don't believe in the expansiveness of their soul because they're completely disembodied people People that live completely in the mind. You know, I had a conversation just recently about non-separation, which I think is something that uh, we touched on in our first conversation, and then something that I actually actually watched in one of your YouTube videos uh, is this feeling that when you take psychedelics uh, in an appropriate dosage, you know, not too much, not too little, but when you take it in an appropriate dosage in the right environment, you feel feel a connectedness right you 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 understand your role in this planet Mm. and this is something that alan watts speaks about in a lot of his lectures so beautifully so beautifully is that the, the the western mythology of you know the god king right sort of it's like you know this this is the like the the religion that we have inherited from the west is a political religion that comes from the feudal times, right? That comes from even in the most, even more ancient than that, right? The the, the pharaoh of all pharaohs, the, the king of all kings, right? In Persia, right? Like in, in Egypt, right? Like there's this kind of um, cognitive dissonance in the mythology that Alan Watts talks about. And I, I don't know if I could even, you know, scratch the surface as eloquently as he did. But it, when I was listening to it, I understood why I don't think those things, and it is because of this uh, sort of Asian Taoism that I was raised in. You know, my my Chinese name is literally what they call the the line in the middle of the yin and yang symbol. You know, my mother is a huge student of uh, qigong, of Chinese medicine, of understanding the natural law and how to work within that. And I think you know there are some there's there is some argument to be made about oh if we if we conquer all disease by using medicine and chemistry and pharmaceuticals to to do such a thing then we are in fact mastering the natural law and yet that's fine let's live without disease let's live to be young and have like beautiful able bodies until the moment that we die that's great but living forever is a funda- fundamental disrespect of your soul, and the reason why I think a lot of folks have this fundamental disrespect of their soul is because they've never felt it. They don't. They've never felt it, yeah. and I hope that by demystifying the Eastern mysticism. Uh, with the neuroscience work that we've done with the hard-hitting raw science and just like the, the pure experience of what it feels like when you breathe in this certain way and you think in this certain way and we can show it on a brain scan that by doing these two things in in the right way with proper form you can stimulate blood flow into the specific region of the brain you stimulate enough blood flow into that region of the brain Repeatedly over a certain number of days, you can grow new neurons in that region of the brain, right? And there is this um, part of the brain, uh, the anterior cingulate cortex, right? It's just one of the main characters in, uh, in the book, Don't Punk Out. What the anterior cingulate cortex does in the brain is it is responsible for um, the prediction of pleasure and pain and delayed gratification. And what the neuroscience shows is that people who spend time habitually doing things they don't want to do, such as exercising, right? People that exercise have bigger ACCs than people who don't exercise, right? And people that, uh, hate cold water or that are scared of water and do ice baths have bigger ACCs than people that only take nice warm showers and go to saunas, Mm. Right? And this part of the brain, you know, the neuroscientists they talk about, it, is not just um, the source of willpower right? like in the sense of the delayed gratification, but they think it's actually the source of the will to live. And in people that uh, in post-mortem autopsies of people's brains, the ACC is small, atrophied and dysfunctional in people that commit suicide. So interesting.
0: So the will to live, it's like you can physically measure that.
1: We're trying, we're trying, and we have a clue. We have a clue. And there's so much about the brain that we don't know, but there is so much that we have learned just since the year 2000. And the, in the in the scale of science, this is relatively recent. I mean, the, the main study that started it all for me uh, was published in 2009 by Professor Richard Davidson from the U- University of Madison, Wisconsin. And he wa- he and his team basically took the tools being these uh, fMRI functional magnetic resonance imaging fMRI machines, and the uh, sort of experimental protocols that neuroscientists were using to study traumatic brain injury and their effect on behavior, as well as you're know, just like you know basically just categorically extremely negative uh, behavioral issues and what might be the underlying neurological connection, if any, right? And he and his team decided, hey, you know, we're studying traumatic brain injury using these techniques. Like, we're we're studying, you know, uh, anxiety, depression, uh, addiction with these techniques. What if we were to study the extremely positive human emotions? You know, what's up with this superhuman compassion that these Buddhists are talking about? Oh yeah. What's up with this superhuman peace of mind that these yogis claim to have? You know, what's up with that? Right. And so they went into the Himalayan mountains, found some yogis and Buddhists. And threw them in these machines. Well, not threw them. They had to convince them. <laughs> um, that would be a but, stressful experience. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. No, but they were chilling because because <laughs> they were perfectly zen about <laughs> being thrown into the yeah. MRI machine. Uh, because well, what they found, what they found, was that in fact these people have five times larger amygdalas than a normal person. You know, that's going about their day to day life. And the amygdala is the center of the fight or flight response in the human brain. It is the part of the brain that when you hear a sound or see a thing, that the amygdala, the the amygdala is directly jacked into your longest term memory. Mm -hmm. Right? If any of these sounds or or sights trigger something that from your long term memory that indicates danger, the amygdala immediately turns on cortisol production. To get you ready to to run. To get you ready to run. To get you ready to fight. Right? And this is... Uh, the part of the brain that allowed us to evolve out of the dangerous jungle but it is the part of the brain that in contemporary society where there's no more tigers well i mean there's tigers but they're in cages you know um there's you know there's just it's 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 this is the part of the brain that makes you triggered anytime uh, anybody says oh, i'm feeling triggered right now that's the amygdala. it's the amygdala mm-hmm. it's th- that's it it's that simple right and in people that have severe PTSD people that have bipolar disorder uh, and what the neuroscience has actually shown uh, that we talk about in the book is that by you know f- you have a certain number of hits to the s- amygdala and by hits i mean the amygdala has become so overstimulated that it short circuits like zzzz, right And, uh, this research that came out of the U S department of veteran affairs, you know, they basically did intake surveys on enlisted soldiers and they tracked over time, how many severe combat episodes they experienced and how many of them had PTSD and like how much PTSD, like, are they on medication? Are they like strangling their girlfriend? Are they like running away every time a car backfires? Right, Right. So they have enough of this data. Now they know that it takes less than 10 severe combat episodes for someone to be completely and extremely bipolar to the point of needing medication, all right? What this means is that the amygdala has just become dysfunctional. That's all it means. Meanwhile, you have these yogis and Buddhists that by doing a specific form of meditation, not meditation in general, not yoga in general, like TM, Transcendental Meditation, does not affect your amygdala at all. It does not help you get not triggered. It will lower your cortisol production. It will de-stress you. Over time, but in the acute instance of a fight or flight response, doesn't help, right? But doing this specific form of what they call bhavana, right? Um, which bhavana is the technical term from uh, yoga that involves savara, which is the science of breath, and mantra, which is uh, words of protection, right? So you're basically inducing psychedelic states through breath. And then when you're in this flow state, where you have increased neuroplasticity you coat you recode yourself with this mantra right by doing the specific form of bhavana they were able to stimulate blood flow into the amygdala and end up with five times more neurons in it and that's why when they put them through this fmri f- machine and they show them a series of images of like uh, it's like a two-hour test it's called the emotional affectivity test right they you know they see like a sunrise a little sunset A little waterfall, and then boom, an image of a guy burning to death. And the audio is playing of him burning and shrieking, right? A normal person goes through this, they see it, and they can see in real time on the fMRI. Blood flows into the amygdala region. There's like a certain amount of magnetic activity, like electrical activity. Uh, And it takes five to 10 minutes for it to return to baseline. In those five to 10 minutes, they call that an amygdala hijack. That means the amygdala has completely caused the blood to flow out of your prefrontal cortex, which is the part of your brain that is you. This is your personality. This is your executive function. This is the rational part of the brain. In an amygdala hijack, all the blood is pulled out of the prefrontal cortex and moved into the motor sensory cortex, right? I mean, like you're ready to run, you're ready to fight, you're ready to kill, right? And there's no stopping it. Hysteria what people used to call hysteria, uh, I mean, they probably still do, you know, like a psychotic a psychotic break, a hysterical reaction, a neurotic situation, is an amygdala hijack. Your amygdala has taken over your entire brain, your pure hormones, your pure fear, and it's in these five to ten minutes that if you're in a romantic relationship or if you're in a fight with your romantic partner, that's when you say the meanest thing that you can say. If you're in a business setting, that's when you do the most cutthroat thing that you can do. Because you're not run by your logic or rational mind anymore. Yeah, you're just trying to get safe. Right. Why does a bigger
0: amygdala mean that the person has more control over that?
1: Well, uh, the working explanation is that as uh, blood flows into it and electrical signals bounce around uh, the amygdala, and out into the surrounding regions of the limbic system. The limbic system is the one that kind of like, it's like sensory information goes in, hormonal responses come out. And um, by having more folds, more neurons through which this electrical signal can travel to, it actually slows it down. The same way that uh, uh, an electron moving through one resistor versus an electron moving through many resistors. Right, if you, you know, in an electrical engineering analogy, uh, if you want to like circuit model, uh, di- uh, circuit model it, uh, that would be the, the working theory is that by having more time, uh, well rather the same amount of time, but more neurons through which to flow, you're able to actually regulate better. right? So when a normal person goes through this emotional affectivity test, it takes five to ten minutes for them to return to baseline. When a psychopath goes through this test, they have a smaller electrical spike, meaning, Much less blood flows into the region and they return to baseline in five to ten seconds. Right. And it's this difference of five to ten seconds versus five to ten minutes, which is why psychopathic behavior is rewarded in a business setting. Because you're unemotional. You're unemotional. You're able to experience a traumatic event and maintain your cool so that because that's what's valued in business, that can you maintain your cool? Right. But when these advanced practitioners of this bhavana technique go through this test, they have a stronger emotional spike than the normal person, meaning even more blood flows to the point that they like, you know, a normal person might see the image of the person burning and say, like, oh, that's sad. Right. This Buddhist will be moved to tears and they'll have a bigger emotional spike, but they'll recover in five to 10 seconds. Ah, okay, So
0: it's like the opposite of a psychopath. They're feeling the compassion and the emotion far
1: stronger. And they're still recovering as quickly as the psychopath. Right. Right. And so this is what we say in the book is the ideal candidate for leadership.
0: Talk a little more about that.
1: If you are in charge of a large amount of people, possibly, you know, like the human brain is only capable of you know, having close, uh, interpersonal connections with like, like 250, 300 people. There's some number that, uh, I forget the name of the name of the guy that posits this number, but I even heard it was a 150, maybe, maybe, but yeah, it's like, uh, like Richard Branson, he says that like, there's so many individual virgin companies because he believes in this principle. It's like anytime one of the companies gets more than this number, uh, where people lose the ability to associate a face with a first name basis, he doesn't create a new division he breaks up the company, right? Like there's like Virgin Atlantic, Virgin North America, Virgin Mobile, Virgin this, Virgin, there's like some hundreds of Virgin companies. Each of them is less than 200 employees or something like that. And so this is, um, you know, when you have these mega companies that are multinational, that have thousands of employees across dozens of offices, and you're one CEO making responsible, uh, making judgments, decisions that affect all of them, whether it's, uh, employment packages, severant packages, uh, uh, criteria for promotion, uh, criteria for firing, you know, like no matter what decision you make, when you're on that scale, you're marginalizing someone. Like my first job was in cybersecurity and we worked with big data and we used to say internally that there's, there's no way you can have access to this much data and not be evil every way that you slice the data. You're marginalizing some group. It's it's tough. It's a really really hard job because everything has become dehumanized. Everything is down to a spreadsheet, right? And what we can say about you know these 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 giant companies like we, normal people living normal lives, we wonder how s and P five hundred company can do such you know, have company policies that are so egregiously bad for the environment so awful to their employees until a regulator steps in and forces them to do things differently, checks up on them, right? Uh, We wonder how it's possible. And, you know, based on the neuroscience and based on simply my personal experience of not even having that long of a business career, but experiencing what we call business PTSD, uh, it's very clear that, you know, like, Every single backstabbing, betrayal, exile event that happens in a business setting, which we sweep under the rug and say, oh, it's not personal. It's just business, right? It is personal. These are humans doing this to each other. This is your boss. This is your mentor. This is your your colleague, your, your acquaintance. I mean, maybe it's not your best friend, but it's someone that you spent every day with, you know, working next to them. And they just took your idea and took credit for it. Yeah. It hurts, yeah, right. But we just we just sweep it under the rug. We just sweep it under. The, it's not personal. It's just business. It's not personal. It's just business, right? Douchebag Brad got the promotion, so I got to be a douchebag like Brad, right? <laughs> right? And um, the reason why these CEOs of these Fortune 500 companies can 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 enact these policies that are do such bad things, and then when some activist group catches them doing it, they spend billions of dollars on a cover up, right? It's because they have been traumatized to the point that they don't care anymore. It's undiagnosed, untreated PTSD from decades-long career experiencing severe, basically combat episodes in a business setting. This is what the neuroscience is showing, is that the amygdala doesn't know the difference between being betrayed by your colleague at the workplace and a combat episode being experienced by a soldier the extreme fear, mm. the extreme stress, mm. this short circuits your amygdala. And you need less than 10 of these to become completely bipolar. So when you look at the world
0: at large, how many people do you think are experiencing these hijacked
1: amygdalas? Everybody. Everybody. Even my amygdala gets hijacked sometimes. And I've done a lot of training. <laughs> <laughs> but the difference between when I was younger versus my experience of an amygdala hijack now is that I can recover from the amygdala hijack in a matter of seconds. And I used to be a little kid with some ADHD autistic rage. Like I really would be that little kid that would like lose at a video game and like be smacked, like punching his pillow, being like, oh my God, I can't believe I lost. Ah! You know, ridiculous to think about. It's absurd to think about that that was me. But I have these memories of like throwing my video game controller at my TV and breaking it, like just like blasting through the screen, you know, and now I can, granted, I still get hijacked, right? But those episodes that used to last minutes for me now last 10 to 15 seconds. I've noticed
0: that through the use of psychedelics in my life, I've gotten so much more zen when things go sideways. Mm-hmm.
1: And I wonder if that's also related to something around the amygdala. Yeah, it's entirely possible. It's entirely possible that it's uh, around the amygdala. So, like, the brain... Neuro- neuroplasticity doesn't just happen with respect to new neurons in these regions of the brain. There's also neuroplasticity of, like, new pathways, right? And, and pruning think,
0: off the old pathways. Yes,
1: yes, exactly, exactly. It's And that, I think, is the... M- more relevant mechanism of action with these kind of immediate belief system shifts that come from psychedelics. It's the, the analogy that I like to use when talking about, or at least when educating uh, people about their first psychedelic experience is that the mind is an ocean of activity. And in the ocean you have currents and these currents uh, allow water to move very, very quickly along the specific groove. Mm. Right. And uh, if anyone's seen the movie Finding Nemo, Right? You hop in that current, you can get from one part of the ocean to another part of the ocean very quickly. Right? That's a great metaphor. Right? And this is you know, basically what happens uh, in your subconscious mind. Right? In the rational part of the mind, you're thinking things through, you're turning things over, you're analyzing it from different perspectives. You know, it's, it's this whole like geometric you know, you know, thing happening. But in the subconscious, it's basically running entirely on currents. And what psychedelics do is it turns the entire ocean into a current (laughs) so you can go every direction you can see connections Mm. between ideas that you never thought were connected but all of these nodes exist in different memory spots in your brain like literally like your nervous system you know what we learned from um the body keeps the score Bessel van der Kolk the book about PTSD is that you know traumatic memories are not just stored in the brain joyful memories are not only stored they're stored in the entire nervous system You could have a PTSD memory from when you were five years old stored in your finger, in the nerves in your finger, right? And, you know, there's only some types of therapy where you can come into a calm state, put all of your mind's attention into your heart center, grab that energy ball, move it up into your shoulder, move it down into your elbow, move it into your pinky, feel that memory and try to unbundle it right there but this is is not something that is even known to be possible in most of the western cultural zeitgeist but it is a thing that is known by hypnotherapists it's a thing that is known by qigong masters it's a thing that is known by yoga masters it's just not known in the anglo-saxon world uh, or rather the world that was created by the british royal empire and the education system that was implemented by that british royal empire uh, where You know, the intention was to turn every beautiful, unique snowflake human baby into a cog that could be taken from an accounting position in Bangalore and moved to Australia and then moved to the colonies and then moved to, you know, anywhere else that the sun never set on the British Empire. And so I I think, yeah, so back to the psychedelics, it's like you can grow new neural pathways around your existing ones, because your mind that only had you know five or six currents now has 100, 200 currents running through it and you can travel them all. And as long as you pick one that's salient and you hold on to it, it will stay. And I think like, like something that you said the first time we hung out is that once you have that awakening once you have that 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 momentary realization when you're in the psychedelic state like you come back sober and you can't forget it what is going on there that you can't forget it and it's a new neural path yes pathway yeah for me that was
0: probably my first DMT experience was a moment of pure realization of unity of God of coming back home non-separation non-separation and although you lose the experience when you come back to 3d reality you there's a part that stays yeah and it's that knowledge it's Mm -hmm. the knowing Mm -hmm. you no longer have to believe or convince yourself that something is real you've just seen it you've experienced it Mm -hmm. tangibly you
1: grokked it you've grokked it i love that for the sci-fi lovers out there
0: and what was i'm curious
1: what was the moment for you where you grokked it oh yeah okay uh, the very, very first time I took mushrooms, it was. I had just turned 21. I was at my uh, fraternity house in Boston, and uh, the older guys were you know, basically teaching us about how to safely do drugs. And, um, you know, up until this point in my life, I had I was like super straight edge. You know, I was a good little Chinese tiger mom boy. You know, <laughs> like you know, didn't party, didn't do drugs, didn't hang out with bad kids. Your mom raised you well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and here I was at MIT. Uh, you know, with all these kids that were just like you know, this, like I really thought when I was younger, I was super smart. I thought I was like I'm the smartest kid in the world. I was actually just like the smartest kid in the nevada school system which is like the second worst school district in (laughs) in the world you know and you know i got to this school and i was like yo there are p there are like real magicians here like it's like fucking harry potter out here and i'm just like i'm a muggle you know like i'm just like an averagely smart guy like that barely made it in you know barely had enough sat scores like i got in because i played football you know (laughs) Can I ask you a tangential question? What do you think
0: is the difference between the super highly intelligent people that you think are like magicians with their brain versus the general population?
1: The general population? Or just the average person? (sighs) Well, I don't want to pontificate on that because I don't want to be an elitist. But uh, there is something that... One of the philosophers said, was it, was it Camus? Was it, uh, maybe it was Nietzsche, but, uh, one of one of these existentialist guys, and, um, they said that the, uh, the difference between a person who questions and a person who doesn't is greater than the difference between a human and a chimpanzee cousin.
0: Wow. Okay.
1: And that is simply just like the question has nothing to do with the mental horsepower, has nothing to do with how many books you read, the opportunity, it's like, are you questioning things? Are you questioning your reality? Are you questioning your existence? Are you trying to find your place in the universe? Because, you know, yeah, I I I, I think the question is what drives people. Like you have this question that drives you. What would the world look like if a billion people were turned on and had that moment of beautiful, Joyful non-separation that can be uh, delivered by plant medicine. That's a question.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's a question that deserves an answer. And there's a lot of people that don't have any questions. Everything's been figured out. You know, it's, there's a there's a beautiful book by uh, Rousseau, the philosopher. Uh, it's about uh, it's a treatise on education, Amelie, and he says that education by the state will only teach your children how to become a good citizen. Uh, the education on how to become a good human is entirely up to you. Right? And unfortunately, I feel that many people leave that latter question, the education of how to be a good human, they just delegate that to whatever moral system their parents told them, and they got that moral system from whatever version of God that they were taught about. And so people aren't even asking, how can I be a good human? So it's more of a question of curiosity. Yes. Rather than
0: the horsepower, the mental horsepower. Indeed. Indeed. But you were at MIT in that moment. In that
1: moment. In that moment, you're like looking at these other. And I'm just like, fuck, these kids are way smarter than me. I'm sorry. Am I allowed to curse? Yeah, OK. <laughs> so I just like had to let go of that whole, oh, I'm the smartest kid in the world, the like identity. Because like these kids were just like, Phew. like I would say the difference between me and the smartest kid at MIT is like I'm a Motorola Razor and they are an iPhone 15. <laughs> right it's that dramatic (laughs) and yeah so you know I I take I'm taking these mushrooms but I'm trusting them because like I know my only asset in my life is my brain and the fear around drugs is losing your mind yes right and I think that I wasn't even aware that people partied so irresponsibly until I left university and started hanging out with people from other places uh, that just had such I don't know, like hidden uh, on-ramps into the world of drugs. And hidden be- meaning like, you know, they didn't have anyone to show them the way they didn't have anyone to tell them how to be safe. They didn't have anyone to show them like, this is how you tell if these are actually real versus if they're not real. This is how you test it so that you know what you're d- taking, what you're putting in your body. You're not just trusting the word of this drug dealer and the drug dealer is just trusting the word of his drug dealer. And it's like, you know, that person's literally putting poison into you and you're having a psychotic, psychotic episode because you just took poison. Right. And, um, yeah. So anyway, it was, you know, I was very, very thankful because like the guy, the, the guy that, uh, yeah, he was like a double degree in biomedical engineering and nuclear engineering at MIT. He's like the fucking smartest guy in the world, <laughs> you know, and his only asset is his brain. So you know he did the research and checked out, like, what is the mechanism of action here? What's going on? Like, what's it going to do to you? What to expect? And, you know, we really, like, I just felt safe, right? And so in that safe container, I managed to have the most beautiful first-time mushroom experience where, like, there was, I remember there was this playground nearby our uh, fraternity house on the Esplanade, on, the, on Beacon Street, and uh, we went to this, this playground and, a bunch of college kids like climbing around on this playground in the middle of the night, you know, on some random weekend. Oh, not random. It was spring break. It was the first weekend of spring break. And um, yeah, it was so loopy. And I was just like, whoa, this is crazy. Like what's going on here? Oh, my God. Ha, ha Everything's so funny. Yay. Oh, yeah. And like I thought that was great. But then I had I felt this urge to like separate myself from the group for a little bit. And I went and sat on this hammock thing. And I was swinging in this hammock, and I was just got very introspective. And I was kind of like looking up at the view, and there were some buildings, and there were some trees. And I remember asking the question, I was like, oh, what am I going to do with this summer? Because I hadn't secured a, a summer internship yet, and by this time, most of the kids had secured their summer internships and again i was the motorola razor right so uh i was like you know f- kind of feeling some insecurity and that kind of like what am i going to do this summer turned into like oh god what am i going to do with my life
0: wow existential questions no, start cause, coming
1: because you, you know like you spend so much time as a teenager and this is my first like i just turned 21 yeah. and i was like man i'm a full year into being an adult quotes right <laughs> like, um what am I gonna do with my life and this tree full-on just like poof, like like it turns like colorful and like 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 Pocahontas colors of the wind style and just like turns around and it's like oh darling don't worry about it just keep working hard and everything will be lovely you know and it was like a British woman like a middle-aged British woman and I was like just keep working hard really that's it yeah <laughs> i love it and and she was like yeah yeah it's like you know whatever happens just just work hard to solve it you know and I, I can't do the british accent for a long time but like full on like this was a british woman right? proper queen's english type you know and then i didn't know trees had accents Dude, dude me. Shh, me, you're, me neither okay <laughs> <laughs> me neither and um then the conversation evolved and i was like well, what am I supposed to do in in this scenario? And then the tree right next to her colorized and like turned around and was like, oh, Charles, no, don't worry. Just keep smiling. You know, good things happen to pretty people. Just exercise, you know, maintain your figure, you know? And I'm just like, this was like the vain one, right? And then the conversation evolved and then the next one turned around and it's like, oh, you're never going to amount to anything. Look at you. You're on drugs in the park right now. You fucking." worthless piece of shit you know just like and she's like the mean old grandmother right and then then the conversation evolved and then the the tree next to her turned around and was just like oh just be nice just be nice to everyone you meet and good things happen to nice people it's karma right it's like if you're nice good things happen to you uh not in like the spiritual karmic sense but in just like just just like in this moment If you're nice to this person right now, the next time they see you, they'll remember how nice you were and they'll do something nice for you. And at that point, I was just like, me with these four trees, all of them female and British, various ages. (laughs) right we got like the the practical like mother aged one we've got the like the young slut right we've got the the old bitchy grandmother you know just like the the prude right and then we've got the really really nice like fairy godmother energy oh my god and i'm just like holding quorum you know i'm just like asking them every question that i can possibly think about my life and you know hearing all their different perspectives and you know having them uh, watching them argue with each other and, like, this lasted for, like, ever until somebody, one of my friends came over and was like, hey, Charles, we're going to go back to the house now. And I was like, yeah, 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 hold on. Let me just finish this conversation. And <laughs> they're, they're like, you're not talking to anyone. <laughs> and I'm just like, what? And they're like, they're like, you're not talking to anyone. I was like, yeah, I'm talking. I got, I got this whole thing going. And I turned back and the trees were all back to their normal selves. Like, completely. there's no colors. You know, the wind was blowing a little bit, right? And I was just like, wow, so trippy. Whoa, just, did, what, did, did, did that happen? What? what? It'd be fun <laughs> if you went back to the exact same spot. Oh, I saved a pin. And I went back to that spot many times before I graduated. Oh, nice. Sat there. And and the thing is, is, you know, so the rest of that night was like, you know, super loopy. And we continued to have hilarious experiences. Nothing quite so introspective. But I went back to that spot the next day. Uh, when I was sober and I sat in that exact spot and I looked at exactly those trees trying to figure out like what happened what was because there it was so intense so real um but of course completely in my head and I came to the deduction that these were at the time uh the four major pillars of my personality Mm. that at the time
0: being extrapolated projected into the 3D space for you to interact with.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Oh, I love it. And that externalization was, I think, so powerful for me to be able to not just see my ego. Yeah. But to see the different alter egos yeah. that would every once in a while take over. Yes. And, you know, basically you know, like that, that I think that movie Inside Out mm. by Disney Pixar hit it right on the head. Like when I watched that movie, I was like, The the director of this movie had the same trip, Mm. (laughs) had the exact same trip. I remember the same thing (laughs) when I watched Soul by also
0: Disney Pixar. I'm like, whoever did Soul, they definitely smoked DMT. Because there's some death scenes in that movie that are like the afterlife and the ways shown, the frequency, the vibration.
1: And I think, you know, the psychedelic community online... Uh, on various blogs like Shroomery or like um, Arrowhead or, you know, these kinds of, um, you know, kind of deep web, not dark web, but like deep web kind of message boards and forums. You know, when people describe their experiences on certain species of mushrooms and certain dosages and like even like there's people that someone was telling me at Burning Man that like there's a whole community of people online that have like they're like doing DMT 100 times, 200 times. 300 times like documenting their experiences and i'm just like dude you guys are going a little too far but the point is is that there is this pattern right there are these similar trips that are happening um for people and i i don't think it's plugged into the universal intelligence right you're getting downloads collective unconscious yes whether whether it's the collective unconscious or it is you know, like a a reproducible dance of these molecules within the body. Um, You know, who's to say what, right? All I know is that that was the first time that I was able to truly see myself outside of myself and dissect the different alter egos. And it was after that point, or maybe it was after my second mushroom trip when I had like a, a similarly intense ego experience, not ego death, but ego confrontation that I thought about this idea that is now your mission. Mm-hmm. It's like, man, people do such bad things to other people, most likely because they don't realize what they're doing is going to hurt other people. This was like my my thing. It's like, you know, they, most people are just kind of selfish. They just do things that's in their own best interests. And they're not like, you know, destructively selfish. They're not neurotically selfish. They're just normal selfish. It's like, I'm going to do what's best for me. Mm -hmm. anytime you're in like a romantic relationship and there's like you know us becomes you and me right i'm not going to do what's good for us i'm going to do what's good for me right that 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 is the opposite of non-separation anytime you make the choice with someone that you love to do something that is best for me you are breaking the magic of that infinity that you created in that moment of love, in the, the previous moment of love, mm. right? And I think that, you know, unfortunately, this kind of like cultural zeitgeist around boundaries and uh, desires and, you know, it's it, it's preventing the joy of non-separation. You know, people say like, I don't want to lose myself in a relationship. It's like, why would you want to keep yourself? You know, like are you are you doing such a good job on your own? If you were, why are you in a relationship at all?
0: Ah, uh, interesting.
1: So the idea of boundaries doesn't resonate with you. I think the idea of boundaries is how you end up alone. You have too many boundaries and no one's gonna want to play with you. It's like a kid in the like a kid in the sandbox. You draw too many lines around yourself. Mm-hmm. Right? There's just lines in the sand. But
0: But there is an, an aspect of boundaries I find really useful in that. You set a certain standard for how you want to be treated. And if other people overstep that, that boundary,
1: yes, <laughs> you have to have strong vision for how you would like to interact with people. I see that as the, the platform on which your ego stands, okay. not as the wall that you build around your ego, uh, right? Uh. So you're not, you're not keeping people out. Like, I wouldn't call that a boundary. I would say, like, I want to interact with people that have built themselves up to this similar level that I'm on. Right, so there's this, philo- and it's not my idea, there's this philosopher, his name is Lacan. He kind of uh, showed up right at the end of the existentialist period and kind of like wrapped it all up. And he had a couple of main ideas that I really hold in my life. Uh, one of them was that the term ego had gone from a strictly technical term used by psychologists and psychoanalysts at the time to describe um, knowledge of the sense of self. It's strictly definitional it's like the ego is the knowledge of your sense of self right and the way that people have been using it in the colloquial terms which is how people are still using it in the colloquial terms, oh he's got such a big ego is they're actually talking about conceit when you're conceited about your ego it becomes very toxic right it becomes very destructive very oppressive to people around you and no one likes to be around a conceited person but we use the vocabulary and create like, oh, such a big ego, it's so egotistical, right? That's what the correct term is, egotistical, right? Not ego, ego is how you understand yourself in relation to others, right? It is not separation, it is um, utility, it's function. It's like, how do I function in this world filled with so many other egos, right? And if you don't know anything about your ego, you're lost. You're not useful to anyone. What do you do? I don't know. What do you do? I'm on a mission to help a billion people understand the value and magic of plant medicine. That's ego. It's a good thing. It's a positive thing. So that's Lacan's first point. It's like, first, let's recapture the term and use it correctly so that it can be a positive thing, right? Those other things you're talking about, that's conceitedness. That's, that's egotistical. The second big idea uh, was that he talks about people that live most of their lives in the mirror phase. The mirror phase is when you have not done the work to build up your ego, you've not done the work to understand your ego, and so you can only see in other people shadows of your own ego. Mm. Right, and this is the origin of the idea, (laughs) again, the colloquial misuse of the term, when people say like, oh, you can only be a mirror for someone else. Mirror, mirror, mirror. They're not using it correctly. Because what's actually happening is you weaponizing the term mirror <laughs> indicates that you can only see the aspect of yourself that you hate in me, right? And that is the term that people understand, is that like when you hate someone, when you're really triggered by someone, it's because they have some quality that you despise in yourself. And if you had actually advanced to the point of uh, self-integration, you would see that and have compassion. You'd be like, oh. I used to be like that. Good luck.
0: Mm, mm-hmm. So it's a level of awareness that you gain
1: through mm-hmm. your own inner work, yeah, understanding your, your own ego. Yeah. And, and that's why I call it like building up, right? Everyone begins on the floor. Mm-hmm. But by working with your ego, understanding your ego, integrating your shadows, right? You build yourself a little stage right? And then that stage gets a little bit bigger. And then that stage gets a little bit taller. Maybe you like you like you ex- expand the dimensions of the stage uh, in the x, y, and then you expand the dimensions of the stage in the z direction right? In the, uh, in the z coordinate, right? And then maybe like you, you you put something on the stage You know, you put some like a uh, 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 what do they call it in theater? Not decorations, but props. Props, right? Yeah. Like, and it's like this is my ego. Look at it, look at look, look at all these nice stuff that I made, you know. And when you have this, you know, well-formed knowledge of your ego, and you've been able to integrate these various aspects of your shadow, other people's problems don't bother you, right? And this is what's beyond the mirror phase, right? Where you actually built yourself high enough that you can see. And respect another person's ego. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's that it's from that place of mutual respect. Like I know myself, you know yourself. Let's have a conversation about ourselves. Mm. I, I want to learn about yourself, and you want to learn about myself. And you know, I know enough about myself to share. Right. But if you don't know enough about yourself, you're stuck in the mirror phase. All you can do is talk about the aspect of you that's in them. Right. Right. And so this is from the philosopher Lacan um and so when you talk about you know like like as you described you know the level of treatment that you expect from another human Mm -hmm. uh that's what i think of as the kind of the z coordinate of building the stage of your ego but i think boundaries are like like the great wall of china is a boundary (laughs) right right this is the fence keep your dog out of my yard right i love that metaphor so so build the platform not the walls build the platform not the walls yeah right invite people right i mean like i'm not gonna lie right one of the one of the fantasies i had when i was writing my book was that if i tell people who i am if i tell people who what i care about someone might see it and care so much about what i care about that they'll find me and we can you know either be friends Become, you know, lovers, right? Become whatever and and sure enough, that's what happened. Right. Like I, I met the love of my life this year. We got we got married, and it's been a beautiful time. I mean, not, you know, I mean, we we both are, you know, we're still dealing with a normal relationship. You know, we're not two enlightened beings, but you know, she's an author, I'm an author, I love what her book is about. She loves what my book is about. And there's this kind of mutual mental masturbation that's happening. <laughs> but because we're two egos that have a very well-defined sense of self. And I, I like to think that neither of us are conceited about it, but you know, sometimes we get in arguments. <laughs> Tell me how you first met your wife. Oh my gosh. The time the timeline <laughs> collapsed, man. It was... Uh, uh, I was on my way to Burning Man. And I was hired to be the meditation coordinator for this one of the sound camps out there called the Buddha Lounge. And uh the reason that i was hired for that i mean hired is a strong word when you're talking about burning man because the culture is so much about giving and so much of it but i was invited to be (laughs) the meditation coordinator and so i taught a workshop every day um that i call sonic acupuncture which is this uh the guided meditation album that we produced for uh the exercises that are described in the book, these specific neuroplastic workouts that, you know, if you induce a flow state, and you train your mind on these precepts, you can stimulate blood to flow in these specific regions of the brain that it, when they're dysfunctional, they cause anxiety, depression, PTSD, and addiction. And so like, that's why I was going to Burning Man. Uh, I had never gone before. It was a completely new experience. And, you know, the people that knew what they were doing, they all said, you got to stop at this Walmart in Reno it's the last stop before you get out there into the middle of the desert, and this is where everybody gets their supplies. And so we're at this Walmart in Reno. I'm with my, uh, uh, I'm, I'm with my group. You know, there's like four of us that are driving up in a car, and it's just like been driving for twelve hours, haven't showered, not cute. I'm in this aisle, the peanut butter aisle. <laughs> I love you remember that, dude. <laughs> uh, because it was shocking, because like all the crunchy peanut butter was gone. <laughs> <laughs> all of it
0: and that's what and you were looking forward to
1: i don't eat creamy peanut butter i don't it's not a thing <laughs>
0: you were you were hoping to stock up on crunchy peanut
1: butter yeah because it's non-perishable it's got all the proteins all the oils you know it's just the perfect per- per- uh, peanut butter is the perfect food for burning man <laughs> 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 and, and there was no crunchy peanut butter and so i was like looking you know if i could find anything you know that i wanted to eat and the aisle was empty and then this girl Walks into the aisle, and she's got the braids in her hair, like all the Burning Man girls do, and she's just like stunning. And I'm just like quietly backing out of the aisle (laughs) (laughs) and walking away. (laughs) I'm just like, there's no way I'm, you know, like I'm not cute right now. I'm like tired. There's no way I could say anything charming. It's like these fluorescent lights. You know, like what are you gonna say? Like, hey, baby, you going to Burning Man? So no, I just, I just, it was like, oh, great. Nothing to see here. And I'm in the next aisle and she shows up again. And and, and we're making eye contact. It's not like she just like walked up and then we, you know, and then I like left. It's like, she walked into the aisle. We had like an intense eye contact at either side of the aisle and then left, right? And then in the next aisle, intense eye contact, left, right? Intense eye contact left i know those moments it's like you see
0: someone and there's
1: an energetic exchange going on yeah yeah it's like that uh that james blunt song it's like i saw your face in a crowded place Mm -hmm. and i don't know what to do yeah (laughs) you're beautiful right and you know i was just like oh it's it's fine it's fine it's fine like i don't need to hit on this girl in walmart you know it's fine all right and
0: stay on the mission stay on the the mission i gotta
1: get i gotta get this i got this shopping list like everything is like bought out you know like we're not we're gonna starve at burning man it's crazy and uh but it's just like five six seven aisles right so then eventually like our shopping carts are next to each other in the middle of this aisle and it it's like uncomfortable because we both know that we both are looking at each other and it's like like we're shopping off of the same list that we found on the internet or something. And it's like, okay, I gotta to talk to her. And I'm about to talk to her and then my phone rings and it's the guy that I was buying a bike from off of Craigslist. He's in the parking lot. And I'm just like, great, pressure's off. <laughs> you know, Like I run out of there, I go, like I try this bike out and I buy it, go back inside, she's not there. am like, okay, whew. <sighs> Don't have to worry about that one, you know, <laughs> like making a fool of myself. Um, was there a part of you that kind of wished she oh, was still there? Oh, of course, of course. Yeah, I, w- I went inside thinking, I wonder if she's going to be still in, in Walmart. I wonder if she's just going to be like in the front while I walk in. And she wasn't. And it was fine. And, you know, we, we did the first day of Burning Man. And. Um, everyone got on their bikes and I get on my bike and I'm like super proud of myself for buying this bike, like just before getting in and like, it's super cheap on Craigslist and the back tires busted. I'm just like, how's that possible? Like I, I tested it in the parking lot. It was fine, but you know, active some magical forces or just, you know, I just got scammed, whatever. But beautiful thing about Burning Man, there's bike shops. Oh. There are some camps that are like, mechanics and they just set up bike shops you know in every little neighborhood so i'm like okay in the morning i'll get my bike fixed and i just stayed in the neighborhood had myself a nice little night and most of the people in my camp had gone somewhere else um night two comes along i spent that day getting my bike fixed It was great uh they explained to me why the bike broke not relevant for the podcast Uh, (laughs) and my friend's saying like oh we're gonna go to play alchemist uh my friend is djing and uh, i was like great great and so we're riding our bikes across the plain. we're at like 230 and f and play alchemist is like 930 and a i think that's how it works no 930 and 930 in the esplanade basically and um but so like from 230 to is completely across and play alchemist is like this big pyramid it's like absurdly tall you know like the, the amount of Like the size of the architecture of some of these camps out there. It was like staggering. You know, it was like my first time, I was very much impressed. Uh, We get into this giant pyramid and like the, the base is rocking. And I'm just like, wow, this is the party. This is, well, I don't know about the party, but it was definitely a party and it was lit. All right. And I see, you know, I see this, we're in the crowd, I'm dancing. I see this beautiful girl. Like, I'm just like, oh, look at that. Yeah, you know? but, but she's in full costume, you know, it's not like, there's no connection in my mind. Right. And you know, like I, we make eye contact and I'm just like, okay, dancing, dancing, dancing. We make eye contact again. I was like, all right, I got to look for an in, I got to look for an in, make eye contact a third time. And she like smiles and waves. And it's like time stopped. And I'm just like, that's the end. That's the end. Right. So I talked to my friend. I was like, guys, I'll see you tomorrow. Like I just, I know, like, that kind of intro, there's no way that I'm going to hang out with you guys the rest of the night, unless you come with us, you know? And so I, like, make my way through the crowd. I get up to her, and I start talking. It's like, hey, how's it going? Like, what's up? Like, is this your first Burning Man? Like, I don't know what I said, but she, the first thing she says is, do you not recognize me from Walmart? <laughs> well, and but- I'm just, I'm, I'm, my brain just exploded. I'm just like, no f- fucking way no walmart girl and i see her and like i'm like because she's got like this like like your full costume like, like you got this outfit and got this thing on her head and i'm just like wow no way i wanted to talk to you and she's like you didn't want to talk to me like you were so rude and i was like what do you mean rude i didn't do anything rude i just didn't talk to you. she was like that was rude <laughs> <laughs> that was rude to not talk to me and I it was probably like 10 minutes that, uh, 10 minutes into the conversation. We kissed and we were dancing and we we just never stopped kissing. Like the, we just spent the rest of Burning Man together. And then the rain came.
0: This was 2023.
1: This is this year. Oh, yeah. wow. The, the yeah. rain, the rain happened. And the day after the rain stopped, the day of the man burn, we got married. Wow. <laughs> There's a lot that happened in between, but. I bet. Yeah, no, we had a beautiful, beautiful playa wedding, wow. on the wing of a 747 that was converted into an art car. Um, huge, like, su- you know, honestly, surprising production value. Like, if we tried to, ha- if you try to have this wedding, not at Burning Man, it would cost you a million dollars. Like, we had this, like, world-famous pianist that was, like, live playing, like, as people were giving their speeches. Like, my friend that I came to Burning Man with, he's my best man, of course. And, like, her friend that she came to Burning Man with was her maid of honor. And we had this, like, proper priestess, you know, who had... Uh, so she was a documentary film producer. And the... Not not my wife. Uh, the The priestess. And the whole thing is was filmed like like this proper like documentary crew and like the the documentary that they were filming they were hired by this tech billionaire uh brock pierce to make this film about the unseen heart of burning man mm. that uh burning man had gotten such a rap about you know being this just like oh there's a bunch of hippies doing drugs in the desert and you know, it's just partying and like drunks and like socialites posting on Instagram. and But in actuality, there's so much beautiful art, right? And, and it is the largest gathering of artists, spiritual healers, uh, seekers, and socialites and hippies doing <laughs> drugs in the desert. But, but people focus on these two categories, the latter two categories, and forget about the first three, that it's art, it's music, it's spiritual healing. And uh, so this the the priestess and her documentary film crew, they had they had filmed one of my workshops because uh, we had been introduced somehow through the playa magic. That's you know, what it's called. It's not my, not my word. <laughs> and yeah so they they filmed my workshop as I was talking about, like, you know. The power of uh, specific frequencies to induce particular uh, brainwave patterns and flow states. The power of um, certain musical keys to induce certain emotional states. Like every musical key has an emotional quality to it, and that's why nursery rhymes are all in D major. That's why uh, uplifting pop songs are all in G major. That's why like sad love songs are always in A minor. It's like it's like this. It's a it's a thing. It's math, right? And so like taking the math of the musical key with the power of these specific frequencies to induce flow states with the drums that we programmed in to guide the specific pranayama breathing pattern with the lyrics that were the mantra that you're supposed to recite in your head over and over again. You know, I had, you know, do- you know a dozen or two people at every one of my workshops and uh, I was tracking how many people came and how many people Full on cried, mm. like deep, traumatic emotional release from one session with no training, and thirty-two uh, percent. It's amazing numbers. And you know, I had these people. They were coming up afterwards of saying, like, "Yo, man, I've been doing breathwork for years and never had this experience. Like, what? What's different? I don't know. Like, I've been doing sound healing for. I love sound healing. I do it every weekend, but like, I never." Had this body shaking convulsions. What did you do? I was like, I didn't do it. You're the one that was breathing. <laughs> do you think it's it's the frequencies? In it's the, the music? combination. Mm-hmm. It's the combination. And I, you know, this is you know the the majority of my work and my focus for this next chapter of my my life is that um, music has been reduced to entertainment. Yeah. Because music feels good. We know that it feels good. But that that is just the most naive interpretation of. The experience that we have in the presence of frequency, and vibration—literally vibration—we I mean, talk about like, "Oh, this guy's such a good vibe." Oh, like she's got such a good vibration, you know. But like, no, literally, yeah. there is something here yeah. where music, properly delivered, can be medicine. Hundred percent, right? Like, I like mean, you the- feel it on psychedelic trips
0: so much—the sensitivity to sound and frequency. And if you ever hear like an ad during <laughs> from YouTube, oh my God, it's the
1: worst, right? amygdala hijack.
0: <laughs> it's like, what the hell is this? But in our 3D day-to-day life, we kind of tune it out. We yeah. leave the TV in the background. Mm-hmm. We, we do all these things that on mushrooms and other plant medicines, you realize everything is frequency and everything that is entering your matrix of energy you have to pay attention to it Mm -hmm. every sound every word every song you play on
1: spotify it has meaning it has an effect on you absolutely absolutely you know there's you know there's a, a time in my life i was actually on mushrooms and we were listening to music and i had this thought about um lyrics in songs i was like you know what if what if all these cheesy pop songs that are just so easily disregarded you know like um uh Miley Cyrus wrecking mm. ball as an example, right Whether uh, are mantras right yeah. yeah yeah what what if it was for real? Mm. I came in like a wrecking ball. I never tried so hard at love, like dude, if you ever had a heartbreak, you ever had a breakup with someone that you were still in love with, and it didn't work out because of distance or timing or family or like whatever reason that didn't have to do with you two deciding that you didn't want it like that hits. You know, and like that at the time was just about the lyrics. But now that I know so much about the the way that ancient cultures used sound in community settings, uh, the Gnostic Christians like that were that had these massive, the first ones to build the massive cathedrals mm-hmm. that were acoustically so advanced that had these organs, right? You would walk in for the Sunday proceeding and the person is playing these specific chord progressions over and over. You know, it's like over and over again. It's like, it's tuning you. Yeah. You think we're at a rave dude? Like, no, this is medicine. All right. This gets you in, it induces a specific flow state and they've been experimenting with it for thousands of years. Right. And it's not just the Christians with the organ or with the, yeah, with with the giant pianos, it's um, the sound bowls, the sound healing. Everybody in Bali loves a good sound healing, right? The size of these bowls was experimented with over thousands of years. The bowl's too small in diameter. It doesn't quite hit. If the bowl's too big in diameter, it doesn't quite hit. When you get two bowls that are improperly matched, it doesn't induce the right effect, right? So that's why it's not just about playing the bowl. It's about knowing the order to play the bowl and when to play certain bowls together, right? This is what creates the magical experience of a sound healing. Same thing with the, the Chinese gongs, uh, like these gongs, the diameter of the gongs were experimented with over thousands of years so that when you entered into the temple, right, the vibration reflects off of the walls, gets into your bones and everybody in the room is here is in a flow state and you know, like certain people talk about, you know, alpha, theta, gamma, like all these different brainwaves. Most people are kind of using the terminology incorrectly, but it is related. It is related. And there is not just an entertainment value to it. So I think that, you know, properly applied, you can cure more with sound therapy than with years of talk therapy properly applied I believe it yeah I'm not saying I'm not saying go to your local sound healing session and expect to be cured of your PTSD because you actually need someone that understands the depth that understands how deep this magic goes I think music is the original magic
0: it is it's the language beyond all languages that everyone immediately understands and I feel like we have been so hijacked with music in the modern society you know you go to every cafe they're playing the pop the pop songs and it's like without permission you're being downloaded these mantras into your head these lyrics these catchy tunes instead of properly using music in a ceremonial setting in an intentional way Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but everywhere you go now people are blasting music yep and yeah i don't know what the solution is there other than people gaining awareness of using sound intentionally listen to the pop songs but don't subject the whole neighborhood to it without consent
1: (laughs) consent (laughs) consent what a what a topic is that a loaded word for you what a top well no i mean just consent with respect to sound yes is a loaded word for me because you know i actually just got hit with an instagram ad recently about um basically targeting uh adhd people uh, of which you know i was diagnosed with adhd as a kid and it's been something that you know part of the reason why i was so dedicated to the meditation practice was, uh, the brain parts that are dysfunctional in ADHD and autistic, uh, people, uh, can be targeted and modulated through meditation practice, uh, through this, you know, the, the practices that the neuroplastic workouts that we describe in the book. And I've seen a dramatic effect in my life, but, you know, to the point that, you know, my ADHD doesn't really flare up that much anymore. Um, and if it does, then I I do this breathing sequence. I stimulate blood flow to that region and I'm good. Right. But, uh, I got targeted for this ad that is like, uh, earplugs for, uh, people with ADHD. And the explanation was so incredible. I was like, I hadn't heard of this before, but it was, so I had used in the past, you know, going to, uh, electronic music festivals. They have these uh, earplugs that are low-pass filter earplugs, so they cut the bass frequencies by like ten decibels or something like that. So you can hear all the music, and you can actually hear people speaking next to you. You don't have to shout, right? It's it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing, and they're very discreet, right? So you just put in these earplugs, you can get as close as you want to the big speakers, and you're you're not going to blow your eardrums out, right? So I had used those before, but these ADHD earplugs they do the same thing for the mid-range frequencies. And I was like, no way this works. I actually read the science. You know, I like did my own external research, not the stuff that they were talking about on the website, which was all sales and marketing copy. But like, there is very strong research suggesting that the part of the brain that processes these mid-range frequencies is differently shaped. I don't want to say dysfunctional, uh, but it's like differently shaped. And so autistic and ADHD people are more sensitive to slamming of doors to uh the clapping of hands to the shrieking of babies uh than other people are
0: that's so interesting
1: and And it makes sense why you're then so distracted or so affected by those noises yeah because you have these sounds that are just happening in the environment and everybody else is able to just be like going about their day yeah. but here i am just like fuck did you really need to do that mm-hmm. right and in kids that don't know how to self-soothe like adhd kids that don't, that's why they have such tantrums right and so you know this 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 thing about sound and consent uh, is it, it really comes down to i don't know if it's consent so much as sovereignty mm-hmm. you know there's a uh, uh, like active noise canceling headphones were game changers for me I had my first noise-canceling pair of headphones when I was uh, just out of college. And that's what enabled my life as a digital nomad. Like, I I just couldn't, like, like, I I had my first job out of college, never had used a noise-canceling headphone, was in a big office environment, um, didn't really need it, right, because everyone's like a library. But even then, I would use earplugs. Like, all through college, I used earplugs when I was working just to not get distracted. Um but when noise canceling headphones came out I was like, "Oh, this is great. Sovereignty."
0: Yeah, cuz you can't expect people to
1: be aware of your sensitivities. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I, and I think you know there there is yeah, it's it's a continuous discussion of consent, sovereignty, um like what can you do to protect yourself versus what is another person's responsibility to uh be sensitive to. You know, it's like It's a tough, it's a tough question. Uh, I mean, when it comes to like one's physical safety, it's pretty well defined. But when we're talking about, you know, visual consent, Mm -hmm. auditory consent, it's like these, you know, sound waves travel around corners. Light does too, right? So it's like, what what are you going to do?
0: Yeah, for me, it's more just noticing how people are not aware how music affects them so much and Mm -hmm.
1: they're blasting music without thinking about it. And if people, if people were aware, I feel like there'd be a lot less neurotic reaction, mm. right? Because, you know, there, there's this movie, I saw it on an airplane once, but it was about this guy who was like this scientist, he, he was a healer that worked in New York City. And he would go to people's houses and take sound measurements by the window Uh, when you turn on the shower, the, 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 like the root note of the coffee maker, and he would create these like sonic profiles of a person's home Mm. and say like, you know, this thing is a G, that thing is a B flat, this thing is an A, this thing. And you have these, like, basically you're living in an environment of constant discord. And that's why you're behaving like a crazy person. Oh, wow. And I thought like the movie was so believable and I thought it was based on a true story, but it's not. (laughs) It's not, and you know, but the whole movie was about how this guy was an independent scientist and had like collected all this research, but he was being rejected by the scientific community at large, who did not want to accept his ideas that uh, ambient sound does have the ability to uh, increase uh, cortisol levels at a resting rate and or or increase uh, the release of oxytocin at a resting rate and you know and so it turns out there's not that much actual science about this i looked after i after i watched the movie but i think there's something to it i really do and especially this 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 experience that we've had i mean now we've you know performed sonic acupuncture for over a thousand people and 32 percent of people with no training is this an audio that they can find
0: online? Yeah, it's you? on SoundCloud.
1: Yeah, Beautiful. we're going to... So
0: we'll yeah. link to that in
1: the show notes. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and we'll, we will release it on um, Spotify. But right now, the first two tracks are available on SoundCloud. The one that we produced with Snoop Dogg and the one that is uh, the basic track of uh, the Eight Pillars of Joy. And we call it Never Skip Joy Day. Okay, so you got to talk to me about Snoop Dogg. <laughs> yeah, How Snoop did he Dogg. get involved? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so Snoop Dogg is super into meditation. Um, and people don't realize that, uh, but he did a whole meditation thing with Martha Stewart, uh-huh. and um, you know we got in touch with uh, with his team, and you know we basically it wasn't a, like a collaboration in the sense of like I was in the studio with Snoop Dogg and we're boys, you know it's not like that, but uh, we are, yeah you know, he's involved with the project and we he had a guided meditation track and we bought the rights to it and uh we reworked it so that it's not because the guided meditation it was just like his voice uh spoken for i think like a minute 30 seconds and so we took that voice sample and added the frequencies that i mentioned you know we added the frequencies we added a specific musical key that would induce a joyous relaxed state and that is the first track on the official book soundtrack and um when it's when it's ready to go i mean because we've been performing at burning man we did this like the portugal burn we did this music festival in australia a couple others um but they weren't like we were experimenting you know like i wasn't sure if this was the direction i i only started making music uh i mean i've been a musician since i was a kid i played the violin at an extremely high level of Chinese tiger mom induction. <laughs> but, um, yeah, like I, like music was not really part of my life story for, since I was 15 and it wasn't until, uh, a mentor kind of pushed me in this direction to like, not only awaken my creative side, but he said to me, he said, you might have the most important message in the universe, but if it doesn't slap, nobody's mm. listening. Mm. If it doesn't slap, no one's listening. If it doesn't slap. And I I looked at him and I was like, it's a book. How am I going to make a book slap? And he takes off his sunglasses and he looks at me. He said, well, you you don't think you can make a book slap? And I was like, no, dude, the books don't slap. Books are books. People read books in like quiet environments. He's like, you ever picked up a Bible? Every page of the Bible slaps. (laughs) These stories move people, Mm. right? The Quran, the Torah, the Tao Te Ching, right? The Bhagavad Gita, right? These stories move people. Yeah. And if your book doesn't do that, I'm not going to read it. (laughs) <laughs> is what he said to me what a great mentor that is a super mentor you know and he's just like you know and that's when i started that's after i submitted the first manuscript to the editor and i then had to do like you know they told me it was too long and so i had to cut out a bunch of the science jargon and you know i had these words in my head he's like oh make it slap make it mm. slap make it slap. and then i recalled in my early journey uh you know like being on psychedelics and listening to beautiful music And then when I got into uh, my yoga practice of, you know, first, you know, sort of, I did kind of the standard, like, you know, Bikram, Vinyasa, Hatha, like whatever yoga, just, you know, sampling all the different yogas. But then when I went to my first Kundalini yoga class, which is entirely focused on the breathing and the meditation side of yoga, which I mentioned earlier, this Bhavana is like, Savara, the science of breath, with mantra, the word of protection. These Kundalini yoga classes, completely blew my mind open and you know the 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 prescription of this is like you do like a a couple of poses to like loosen up the body right and this is when I learned that asana right the the poses of yoga the purpose is not to actually do a handstand the people that are doing handstands in yoga are just you know wasting their time showing off right the purpose of asana is to make the body flexible enough so that you can sit in meditation for as long as it takes to achieve nirvana. Mm-hmm. This is the structure of the science, the old Indian science of the soul, right? A reproducible method by which to obtain lasting peace and superhuman compassion. Right? And you know the lasting bit didn't really show up until Buddha, right? I mean according to yoga cosmology, right? Like 60,000 years ago Shiva taught the people yoga. And for sixty thousand years, people have been exploring and achieving what they call the jhanas, J H A N A. The jhanas are these heightened psychic states. There's level one, the jhana of pleasant sensations. Level two, level three, level four, level five. You know, and at each one of these states, the experience of joy, non-separation, timelessness. Here, actually, I will. I'm just gonna read them through because it's it's worth discussing. It's worth discussing.
0: And I would love to also get into your November
1: 2015, I believe, experience that really shifted. That was my my first jhana. That was my first jhana, right? So the the first eight levels of jhana that Shiva told the people about, delightful sensations, joy, contentment, utter peacefulness. Then level five is the infinity of space. Level six is the infinity of consciousness. Level seven is the no-thingness. Like not nothingness, but... There's just no more things. Like This is what we call complete non-separation. Um, and then after the no things, there's just, there's not even perception or non-perception. Imagine that. That's what the yogis called the samadhi. Samadhi is like, I'm not even I anymore. The thing that is perceiving is not even separate from the thing that is being perceived.
0: Yeah, full unity. <laughs>
1: yeah what like to the point that you're not even perceiving that it is unity it's it, it's it
0: kind of reminds me of a breakthrough dmt dose where i was perceiving visuals but also realizing that i was the visuals boom it was
1: not like watching a movie boom screen. it was energy perceiving itself boom there you go there you go and the thing is by the time of this november 2015 experience just like on a wednesday hmm random Kundal like random kundalini yoga studio in chicago yeah set the stage first yeah dude it was just like (laughs) i was you had no idea what was gonna happen no idea you know like i had been flirting with this kundalini yoga thing and i had been the first at the end of my first kundalini class which is like basically a series of breathing exercises um i was shocked that i felt high like like from smoking weed right like i had was completely straight edge all through high school like chinese tiger mom when I got to college, uh, I smoked weed for the first time. And, you know, since the first day that I smoked weed, I smoked weed every single day. <laughs> All right, because it was just like it helped with my ADHD. It was better than Adderall. Uh, and you know, for me, right, like everybody's brain works differently. Everybody has their own stuff, right? Uh, but for me, it allowed me to never... Or it allowed me to dramatically reduce my amygdala hijacks. Like it allowed me to like just be chill. Right. But I didn't sacrifice productivity. Of course, I I graduated. I started my first company. We raised venture capital money. Like we had great customers. Like we did great. Right. Which is kind of
0: rare that it didn't
1: sacrifice your productivity because for me, it relaxes me as well. But
0: absolutely, I
1: sacrifice productivity. So yeah. it's, it's fascinating how well, your for, brain works. For me, it was, yeah, like a lot of people experience um, social anxiety on marijuana. I'm the opposite. When I'm in large crowds of people, like a networking event, like the event that we met at, yeah, uh, I would historically be just like, I don't, I, I don't know what to say. Like everybody's got like, you know, like a hypersensitive person, you know. Uh, but like if I smoked a, a joint before going into one of those things, then I could chill. I could settle in, I could find a conversation vibe with it. Right. And so like, it allowed me like my unlocks a certain, no, it just muted. Oh, muted. Yeah. It muted uh... my anxiety to the point that I could actually function. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and that basically continued until this year, like this is like, I, like, there was just like an energetic move that I did with a, a Qigong master out here in Bali and I haven't even thought about weed. Since it's crazy, you know, like how much this thing was like a part of my life every day. Not to the point that I was addicted. I mean, you could say that I was addicted because I did it every day, but I didn't feel like I needed to, like, you know, like I wasn't like scratching my neck if I wasn't smoking weed. It was just like you know a thing that I enjoyed doing, and I made sure I was always able to do it, and it didn't sacrifice my life. But now I don't even think about it. Yeah, I don't even think about it. Um, but we were going back to. Uh, The November November 2015, 2015. yes. So on this particular day, it was the end of a work day. I hadn't yet smoked a joint that day, right? It was like the class was 7 to 8.30 p.m. Objectively, hour and a half. I get in there just expecting to like, you you know, have myself a little high, you know, like get myself a little like relaxation. Like I'm learning how to meditate. Like this is great. But, you know, there was just this one moment maybe like 15 20 minutes in uh, i mean actually, i actually have no idea how, how long it was in but it was like maybe like two or three sequences and the way we do these breathing exercises like you do a sequence of a particular breath pattern and then you hold at the bottom they call this a kumbaka, right and the kumbaka, and you when you hold your breath you engage the root lock the uh, Udiyana bandha, which is like the belly button lock the Jalandhara Bar, which is the throat lock, you hold these three locks like you. You do all this breathing, and you completely exhale, and you hold, and you hold for as long as you can. And the yogis call this playing with the air hunger. All right when and what what playing with the air hunger means in normal language is you simulate the experience of suffocating. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds delightful. It is delightful because uh, in the neuroscience term we'll talk about is that this is uh, enables the subtle secretion of DMT.
0: Aha. Uh-huh.
1: Okay. Right, and so. But what it does on a spiritual level is it teaches you that on a on a, like in the like in the grokking sense like <gasps> when you take that big inhale afterwards then you do those three locks again the Udiyana banda, the 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 Mula Bandha, the the you know the belly button lock the root lock and the throat lock you hold completely filled with air right this <gasps> teaches you that all of life exists in a single breath this is how you grok the reality all of your life is in this breath. It's
0: oh, so cool. All of your life exists in a single breath.
1: Not just a single, in a hypothetical. This one.
0: This one. This breath.
1: Like, our entire life is right here. And all these stories, this, this crap that happened in the past, the stuff that we're going to do in the future, it's not real. Mm. Maybe it was real. Maybe it will be real. But, like, all of your life is happening right here. Really gives a new definition to the
0: power of now. One single breath. This breath.
1: This breath. Right? And that's why, that's why the yogis do this, right? And, uh, and so the, you do this full exhale, kumbhaka. You do the full inhale, kumbhaka. And then you do what's called a cannonball breath where you just like <sighs> release. And it was maybe the third or fourth cannonball of this class that I just like, poof, like I was out of my body. Like I was just like, like shot, like, like I, Freak s- through. like I felt my metaphysical soul, like, like blast out of my body, like a rocket. I was like looking down at it and I was just like gone. Like I was out of Chicago. I was out of America. I was in <laughs> space and I was just like, what the fuck? But I could still see my body. Yeah following instructions and doing these breathing patterns as prescribed by the teacher and this teacher you know is guru nishan in chicago she's like extraordinarily powerful witch um massively massive you know energy and like beautiful knowledge um and i was very i didn't know her like i just went you know it was like a a class you know but like <laughs> since then i've come to know her story and i understood why she was able to guide me through this experience um but yeah man i was like it's interesting too that your body continues to do the breathing it's like a part of
0: your consciousness stays yeah to continue
1: yeah the routine yeah and then yours I, I was just gone yeah like i was gone yeah. like i was full on in a hallucinate. uh like hallucinating state i was basically a dmt trip not basically yes 100 100 100 percent dmt (laughs) trip like i just like had played with the air hunger hard enough and it was i think my first conscious dmt trip amazing and it was just like and i was like experiencing full day and night cycles as if the day had continued right Mm -hmm. and i like fast forwarded a few years and i i met my my wife in this version of life and then I was like, this version of life is weird. And then I hopped to another timeline, and I met that version of my wife, and we had kids, right? But and I and I could remember from that experience all the life choices that I had made in that timeline up until that moment. And then I would go into another timeline, and then another timeline. And I was just like having fun. I was like, oh, sh- this is crazy, this is dope. Um, but the thing is, I didn't even know that I was still tripping in a yoga class i didn't have that conception of like a possibility like i had just like thought that i don't know life continued and i was just in this version of life and then something would happen like i think i mean it's likely that i mean it's tough for me to like exactly remember but it's it's likely that every time we changed positions and did a new breathing exercise then i would like enter into a new timeline right and that was like the like the momentary like return to my body and then blast off again And then the momentary return to my body blast off again. And, you know, I was just like appalled. You know, I was like, I like, like I remember when the gongs came and she was like, you know, come back to your body, come back to your body. I was exploring, uh, uh, one of the timelines and I was like, no, 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 Hold on. I need to, I'm I'm not done here. There's so much here. (laughs) (laughs) And and I came back to my body and like, I woke up from the Shavasana and I look around at the like 10 other people in this class i'm just like did you guys am i the only one that (laughs) what the what the you know and and by this time in my life i had done acid and like high dosages i had done mushrooms yeah i'd done mdm i had combinations thereof you know we're familiar with the psychedelic experience i was like full-on psychonaut you know but nothing like this the hardest trip of my life wow the hardest trip of my life and like i didn't have this vocabulary of the jhanas i didn't know what i just went through but in reading the description of uh what the jhanas were this was level six um what is level six again yeah you may feel so in level six is well so level five is the infinity of space Level six is the infinity of consciousness. So I feel like there was like sort of an oscillation and like by the end of it, I got to level six. But um, the fifth through the eighth jhanas are the absorptions without form. This is because they refer to states of consciousness where there is no perception of a form or body. They correspond to heavenly realms, which also have no form or body. That is beings reborn to the formless realms which are some of the heavenly planes that do not have a body but do have pleasant existences. It's very, like, I don't even know what that means, reading it to you, but I remember what it felt like. You enter the fifth jhana by remaining in the utter peacefulness state, which is the previous jhana, and then shifting your attention to the boundaries you your being. You focus your attention outward as if you are watching yourself from above. You may feel like you are floating above your body at first. You put your attention on your body so that it feels like you are filling the room. This is expanded further and further so that you fill your whole neighborhood, city, country, continent, and then to space itself. You find yourself in this huge expanse of empty space, right? So that's what I was describing, like, like I blasted up out of my body and like I saw my body from super far away. I was in space. That's level five, right? So the infinity of consciousness, uh, and the, the the descriptions of these states get more and more wild ridiculous as you go because there's no words yeah there's no like the experience is so overwhelming the time dilation is so insane you have no frame of reference Mm -hmm. right i feel like when you're on psychedelics with your when you're with other people when you're in an environment where you're just like oh i'm on drugs like i need like there's this constant like undercurrent of like am i safe Mm -hmm. right but when you're in a yoga class (laughs) (laughs) or you're sitting on a yoga mat you know breathing there's no fear of your safety so you just completely disembody yeah right um so level six is the infinity of consciousness you enter the sixth jhana by realizing that the infinite space you occupy includes your consciousness so you shift your attention to infinite consciousness instead of infinite space Mm. you may feel at one with all nature and existence but do not be fooled (laughs) this is not full enlightenment concentration is further increased And there is still one-pointedness of mind, right? And what is the next jhana? The next one is the no-thingness. That's the complete non-separation. The seventh jhana is entered by realizing that the content of infinite consciousness is basically empty of any permanent nature, right? When you're in infinite consciousness, you're like, oh, everything here is malleable. Everything here is a figment of my imagination. There's no permanence anywhere, there is nothing in the universe that has any permanent essence to it. We realize that everything is in constant flux, right? That is often experienced by moderate dosages of acid.
0: Wouldn't you say that I amness is permanent?
1: That feeling of I am perception. Maybe in, in the sense that I am all and all is I kind of thing. It's like I, I am you, you am I. Uh-huh. Oh, how does it go? I am you, you am I we are all something like, there's one of the mantras that's like that but yes yes i, I do think that that's what it is um what's the next job? the next one that? is neither perception nor non-perception and that's when the i am dissolves there's no i it's just m it's Ooh. just um oh, right like people talk about like om like what is om yeah like, what is ah, like, why do all these mantras have this, like, this O sound with the M and this ah sound like, like, in this lineage of yoga, um, they say like the, the main mantra is, uh, "Satnam. Sat right? And Sat, uh, Sat means the, the truth within me, right? Like the infiniteness inside of me underneath what everyone thinks is me underneath all the layers that I think is me, there is this like infinite kernel right in uh in buddhism they call this the bodhicitta right it's like the 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 brilliant gem that no matter how many layers of rock cover it can always be found again untarnished i love that right these layers of rock being the traumas of your life yeah um when it comes to uh the meditation on the six anxieties which is uh the second of the neuroplastic workouts that we describe in the book bodhicitta is like the central thing it's that like when all else fails when every form of conscious and subconscious uh, thinking does not serve to alleviate your suffering you meditate on bodhicitta. you meditate on the satnam right and the way that these uh, uh, kundalini yogis close their long meditations is I mean you're in this like really intense psychedelic state and you just spent like 11 minutes or 22 minutes or 33 minutes like on the same phrase over and over again, over and over again, over and over again like You know like, like I bow to the primal wisdom I bow to the timeless wisdom I bow to the infinite wisdom I bow to the wisdom that no matter how many times forgotten will always be rediscovered Right? You just said that shit in your brain for like 11 minutes Right? <laughs> and then you I can do, feel the power of those words. Right? I bow to the timeless wisdom. Yeah. Wow. The bow to the wisdom that no matter how many times forgotten. Yeah. Will always be rediscovered. And then at the end of that, you, and this one, the satnam is more about the vibration. You just, like, you rub your hands together. You're in prayer pose and you're like, Sat Right. And you feel that sound coming through your ears, but you feel that vibration in your throat. And it's just like as and, you know, of course, it's in another language, but you hold that concept of like the truth within me where you're integrating all of these on- mantras, like which are new ideas. They're not ideas that you believe. A mantra should not be something that you believe. It's something that you're trying to program yourself into believing.
0: Uh, good, good distinction. Yeah.
1: Right. If you're just doing, if you're like, people, I see this all the time with like the fake wokes, you know, like <laughs> just talking about like, oh well, my mantra is that, 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 that You know, it's like some shit that you saw on Instagram. It's like no, 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 no. These mantras, these concepts were designed over thousands of years of experimentation, and they didn't know what they were doing, like from a from a from a fMRI brain scan visualization level, but what We have now learned about what they achieved is that certain mantras, when you really think about the concept in the presence of a neuroplastic brain state, a highly malleable flow state, you stimulate blood flow into specific regions of the brain. Think about that, dude. Through thousands of years of experimentation, they figured out if I think this concept while I do this breath pattern, it grows my amygdala, which makes you bulletproof to fight or flight response stimuli it strengthens the neural connectivity of your temporal parietal junction the temporal parietal junction the tpj is the part of your brain that's responsible for uh being able to visualize what your physical body looks like outside of itself Mm -hmm. and these yogis and buddhists that have highly developed tpjs they can not only visualize their physical body outside of themselves they can visualize their metaphysical body outside of themselves they can think what does this person think of me right how does my action right now my decision affect people that i will never meet Mm -hmm. you know and, and it's because of an atrophied tpj that you have these fortune 500 ceos making these decisions that ruin millions of people's lives and they sleep peacefully at night because there's just no blood flowing into that tpj
0: you mentioned the word atrophied and it reminded me of something I heard you say
1: about joy, mm. joy atrophied. Yeah. And I'd love it if you can talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that joy well, it's not, an I think, it is the experience of myself in business and other entrepreneurs and executives. When you catch them in a, you know, slightly loose, you know, a little bit of drunk state, you know, may at a cocktail party you know, they'll talk about how difficult it is to have emotion in the workplace because you get penalized. Mm. You get penalized if you don't make an unemotional, rational decision, right? And over time, I mean, the brain is a beautiful organ, right? Over time, in order to cope with the difficulty of let's say your boss asks you to do something that you think is morally incorrect but if you don't do it you're going to get fired and if you get fired you're not going to bring home that paycheck you're not going to be able to put food on the family for your table or for food on the table for your family you're not going to be able to pay your mortgage your family's not going to have a place to live what's more important your family or your how you feel about the situation right and so in order to cope with that quandary the mind neuroplasticizes itself to take that emotional stimulus and route it around the amygdala. So over time, blood no longer flows to the region.
0: And that's what gets smaller.
1: And that's why it gets smaller. It decrease the neural density, right? And this happens, you know, like uh, well, with respect to the uh, ADHD and autism, the anterior cingulate cortex where, where people like us were born with, An underdeveloped anterior cingulate cortex. This is the part of the brain that's responsible for like uh, delayed gratification. Like, if I do this thing I don't want to do, it's going to lead to some positive outcome, right? That's why ADHD kids, you tell them to do their homework and they don't want to do it. It's like, fuck you, right? But if you give them Adderall, they'll do it because what Adderall does is it pushes blood flow straight into the ACC. And what is the better solution for these kids? Uh, The better solution is to. I mean, the better solution is straight up neuroplastic training. It's that, you know, if you do this breathing exercise, but of course there's the whole like education about like, you know, you got to make it fun for them. You got to make it feel good. Right. And that is the side benefit of doing the mantra training with the breathing patterns that it actually does feel good. Right. Part of the reason why, uh, ADHD, autism, neurodivergent kids have, um, often misdiagnosed with anger issues or bipolar disorder is because self-soothing my body doesn't feel good that loud noise bothered me right but if i can find the strength to make myself feel good then i don't have these outbursts right and um you know stimulating blood flow into the nerve. like so we, we talked about these uh, eight pillars of joy which is the first it was one of the tracks that's publicly available on soundcloud Uh, If anyone were to do just simply listen to this track every day for 40 days, it's a five-minute track. Breathe along to the drums. Listen to the mantra. Like Think along with the lyrics, like the joy of changing my perspective, the joy of humility, the joy of humor, the joy of acceptance, the joy of forgiveness, the joy of gratitude, the joy of compassion, the joy of generosity. Each of these eight pillars of joy have kind of popped up into different gratitude practices or different, uh, you know, know, generosity is contained in the philanthropy sector, right? Like gratitude is contained in the journaling world. Um, Acceptance is, you know, I I think there's like a Christian prayer around accepting the things that I can control and the things that I can't. Um,
0: So it's kind of proliferated itself into yeah, It's proliferated
1: itself, but it's all segmented, Uh you know? And if you contain them all into just, this one sort of sequence of thoughts while you are inside of a, a flow state, you can very quickly reprogram your mind and you're not reprogramming your mind in the sense of like software. So in my, in my book, I really break it down. Like, and I, I'm very strict about your beliefs, your belief system. That's the software that's running in the head. Right. And then your brain, the physical organ of the brain, that's the hardware. That's mm. like the hard drive and the CPU, right? And 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 the mind is the firmware in between. Uh huh. Right. So when people talk about like-minded people, yeah, you know, a lot of times like-minded people are organizing themselves based on their beliefs, but people can have different. People can have the same beliefs and very different brain hardware. Right. And that's where the like-minded thing kind of falls apart. Right. that's where the like-minded, that's where the conversation around what does it mean to be like-minded kind of, it gets confusing, but, and and especially when it comes to like religious debates, right? Like, like my God says this and your God says that, and my God's not even on the map, you know, (laughs) it's like, like I believe in the force, you know, I believe in AI, I believe in, you know, flow states, whatever. Right. Like everybody has a brain and that brain All of our brains have the same structures. They're just variably sized in relation to each other. And now we know that by doing the specific exercises, these neuroplastic workouts, that we can stimulate these specific regions of the brain that contribute to all of us getting anxiety, depression, PTSD, and addiction. So I try to stay out of belief system topics. I try to stay out of mind games. I'm only interested in brain training. For those that are interested in this sequence and this brain training, yeah,
0: where can they start to work on this? The
1: best place to start is the eight pillars of joy. It's the simplest breathing pattern. It's a long, slow, deep breath. You, know, you sort of uh, you know sitting comfortably in a chair. You can sit in a chair. You can sit on the couch. You could even do it in bed, right? But the the pattern, uh, what the breath pattern does is it creates a nervous system memory anchor. Right? And that nervous system memory anchor is linked to a visualization. And that visualization is linked to a web of concepts. Right? And this is the way that you can um, immediately long-term potentiate. Long-term potentiation is like the, the conversion of short-term memories into long-term memories. Right, And now we know that potentiation is neuroplasticity. It's actually the growth of new neurons as described in the book, Atomic Habits. Right. And so the atomic habit for anyone struggling with anxiety, depression, PTSD, or addiction is, at least in, in my biased point of view, and as the neuroscience is supporting my recommendation, the eight pillars of joy breathing exercise. Can you guide us through that? Right on, now? On the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And our people who are listening, will they be able to follow along and they will be. Yeah, beautiful. they will be. I can I can describe all the different body movements. It's very simple and uh yeah, so if you, if you're listening, uh, you can I guess skip ahead five minutes if you don't want to participate. But if you are in a place where you can just simply do some breathing uh, without being disturbed, uh, sitting up straight with your shoulders slight, uh, shoulders back, chin slightly tucked, all right, closing the eyes, taking a long, slow inhale through the nose, and as you're inhaling, put all of your mind's attention singularly focused on the words, the joy of changing my perspective. Right, so take a long, slow, deep inhale through the nose. Letting the words rumble, the joy of changing my perspective, the joy of changing my perspective, the joy of changing my perspective. And do it silently in your head, you don't have to do it out loud, but then when you get to the top, inhale some more, visualize the bottom of the ribcage opening. <sighs> inhale some more, visualize the collarbones opening. <sighs> inhale one more time, thinking the joy of changing my perspective. <sighs> out slowly through the nose. <sighs> And this is a very quiet exhale, as if, you know, the yogi say, as if you're breathing out through a single strand of hair, letting the words rumble, joy of changing my perspective, joy of changing my perspective, joy of changing my perspective, all the way to the bottom, squeezing the belly button, engaging the abdominal muscles to push all the air out of the lungs, squeeze, squeeze the joy of changing my perspective, relax the belly, breathe in, thinking the joy of humility letting the words rumble, joy of humility, joy of humility, all the way up, all the way, filling the lungs as much as you can, the joy of humility, inhale some more, open the ribs, inhale some more, open the collarbones, inhale once more, exhale slowly, the joy of humility, out through the nose, letting the words rumble over and over again, the joy of humility, the joy of humility, focusing only on the word, not on where the ripples of the mind go, at the bottom, squeezing the belly button, Engaging the abs to push all the air out of your lungs. Squeeze the joy of humility. Relax, breathe in the joy of humor. Thinking the joy of humor, the joy of humor, the joy of humor, all the way to the top of the breath, filling the lungs completely, stretching the ribs. Inhale some more, open the ribs. Inhale some more, open the collarbones. Inhale once more, the joy of humor. Out slowly through the nose. At the bottom of the breath, engaging the abs, pulling them in, tucking the tummy in and slightly up, squeezing, pushing all the air out, squeezing the joy of humor. Relax, breathe in, the joy of acceptance. Thinking the words joy of acceptance, joy of acceptance, joy of acceptance. Don't think about anything else but the joy of acceptance. Inhale some more, open the ribs. Inhale some more, open the collarbones. Inhale once more, joy of acceptance. Out slowly through the nose. Joy of acceptance, joy of acceptance, joy of acceptance, joy of acceptance, and at the bottom, squeezing the belly button, pulling it in and up, pushing all the air out of your lungs, joy of acceptance. Relax, breathe in, the joy of forgiveness. Joy of forgiveness, joy of forgiveness. This might be the most difficult one for a lot of people, but focusing on the concept of the joy that can be found in forgiveness. Inhale some more, open the ribs. Inhale some more, open the collarbones. Inhale once more, joy of forgiveness. Out slowly through the nose. Joy of forgiveness, joy of forgiveness, joy of forgiveness. At the bottom, engaging the belly button, pulling it in and up, pushing all the air out of your lungs. Squeeze, squeeze the joy of forgiveness. Relax, breathe in the joy of gratitude. Letting the words rumble and fill the mind as the air is filling the lungs. Joy of gratitude, joy of gratitude, joy of gratitude. Inhale some more, open the ribs. Inhale some more, open the collarbones. Inhale once more, the joy of gratitude. Out slowly. As you deplete the lungs, joy of gratitude, joy of gratitude, joy of gratitude. At the bottom, pulling the belly button in and up, squeezing the abs, joy of gratitude. Squeeze, squeeze. Relax, breathe in, the joy of compassion. Inhaling all the way, filling your body, filling your soul with the joy of compassion, filling your mind, joy of compassion, joy of compassion. Inhale some more, open the ribs. Inhale some more, open the collarbones. Inhale once more, joy of compassion. Out slowly through the nose. Joy of compassion, joy of compassion, joy of compassion, joy of compassion. At the bottom, squeezing the abs. Squeeze again. Push all the air out. Squeeze some more joy of compassion. All of your mind's attention. Relax. Breathe in the joy of generosity. Rumbling the mind, joy of generosity, joy of generosity, joy of generosity. Inhale some more. Open the ribs. Inhale some more. Open the collarbones. Inhale some more. Exhale slowly, the joy of generosity, all the way down. Joy of generosity, joy of generosity, joy of generosity. This is the final exhale. So as we get to the bottom, we're going to exhale as we did before, squeezing the belly button as we did before. But this time at the bottom, engage the root lock. This is the perineum muscle. This is the muscle between where you pee and where you poo. Squeezing the root lock, squeezing the belly button tight with your lungs fully exhaled. Do not breathe in. Hold. Hold at the bottom. inhale taking the biggest inhale biggest inhale of the day at the top of the breath squeezing the belly button in the outward position breathe in some more engage the root lock breathe in some more put the tip of the tongue to the top of the mouth tuck the chin holding these three points the belly button the root lock tip of the tongue top of the mouth breathe in some more hold your breath do not breathe out Do a cannonball breath. <sighs> Keeping the eyes closed, relaxing the breath. Take a long, slow inhale, long, slow exhale. Try not to fidget. and this is when it's customary to think as you're inhaling sat as you're exhaling nam you know, the truth within me right? so we just did those eight pillars of joy thinking about all the different facets of joy now integrate that with the truth inside of you underneath all the layers of other things that describe you sat nam sat no. And that's it. How do you feel? Wow. Yeah. Describe it. How, how, how did you feel in your body? You know,
0: what I noticed was on the inhale, and you said inhale more, inhale more, it becomes harder to inhale. I suppose that's something that you gain over time with practice. It felt like I'd already reached the maximum. Indeed. And then you're like, inhale more. And I'm like, I have to scale to inhale. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you how do you deal with that when, when you reach that point?
1: Well, so the reality of, uh, I guess, modern life is, you know, like when you stand with proper posture and your shoulders back, right? Uh, and then you roll your shoulders forward to use your phone or you're rolling your shoulders forward to use the keyboard. Uh, you lose 30% lung capacity just with that motion, Mm -hmm. right? And so the more time you spend on your phone, the more time you spend on your computer, your lungs atrophy. And not the lungs themselves, but it's the muscles in between your rib cage. Mm. They get used to being in a smaller range of motion, right? So the elasticity of these specific muscles in between your rib cage kind of lock your lungs into a 70% prison, right? And so doing this exercise... Uh, I mean, it's not just a a mental workout where you're like stimulating blood flow to the regions of the brain. It's also a physical workout where we're reversing atrophy of the lungs. And, you know, one of the amazing things, uh, the benefits of this practice is that oxygen is the limiting reagent in cellular respiration, which is how your body converts glucose into energy, right? In the absence of uh, sufficient oxygen, your mitochondria in your cells will turn one glucose into two ATPs. The ATP is the unit of energy. In the presence of sufficient oxygen, one glucose can turn into 36 ATP. 18 times more energy, right? Crazy, right? And if you, I mean, we just did eight deep breaths and you feel energized. Like I feel more energy than the coffee that we took at the beginning of the call, right? So if you were to sustain that, I mean that was f- less than 5 minutes of breathing that we just did but if you were to sustain that for 11 minutes mm-hmm. for 22 minutes right how much oxygen your body would be having coursing through the veins every single cell able to get enough oxygen to produce 36 ATPs which is giving you energy which is giving you the most pure energy I mean the energy we get from caffeine it's it's a central nervous system stimulant you know CNS stims uh, Give me the stims, Ah, right? It's great. It feels good. Adderall, Ah, you know, give it to me, give it to me, right? But what we're dealing with here is pure biological, physical energy. Which is what we're all seeking. Which is what we're seeking. Indeed, indeed. And, you know, this, you know, regular practice, uh, habitual repetition of this practice will actually increase your resting metabolic rate. And, uh, you know, some very exciting work that we're doing with a tech company out of San Francisco. Um, yeah, you know, I, I don't want to talk too much about this research as it's ongoing, but we have high hopes that we can affect heart rate variability in a positive direction. Um, heart rate variability being the kind of metric that, uh, the whoop sensors, hmm. uh, is very popular among endurance athletes. Um, is it similar to the, what heart math is doing with coherence? I'm not sure what heart math is, but I will check it out because uh, probably, uh, I feel like in the recent times, uh, well not really recent, but like ever since the Apple Watch popularized having biosensors on your body, because I mean, of course biohackers have been doing this for decades, right? But you know, Apple Watch has introduced this concept to the general population, and your Apple Watch will measure your heart rate variability uh, different times over the period of day and um people are starting to pay attention to the point that now they have like you know devices that are very very successful in the market that are measuring your heart rate variability on a millisecond level right and the higher it is uh the better and so you know
0: of all the trackers, is there any specific one that you prefer?
1: I'm actually not super well educated in it. It just so happens that one of my friends is the founder of this tech company in San Francisco that is working on measuring emotion through heart rate variability. Uh, so we have a lot of collaboration to do, and uh, I'll let you know what the data shows. But um, there is a you know there is a breathing pattern that the yogi my my master taught me that can speed up your heartbeat to inhuman levels without giving you a heart attack. Uh, there's another breathing pattern that can slow your heartbeat down to inhuman levels without causing a, a problem. Is this you know? the knowledge that the yogis had for millennia? This is Yeah. They were just playing around. You know, these crazy people in the mountains, you know, stretching and breathing because they were bored. <laughs> and it's not that they were bored. It's that people don't realize how, sort of trivial it is in the modern world to alter your state Mm. right like if i'm stressed let's walk down to the corner and have a beer right a drink let's let's roll up a joint let's take a pill let's you know eat some plant medicine that's readily available from the local dealer i remember reading a book where the author was describing how every culture through civilization is always seeking a change in consciousness through some means absolutely It's, it's human because the burden of consciousness is something, uh, another thing that Alan Watts talks about that I love is that, you know, there's only two ways that humans contend with the burden of consciousness. It's, it's too much to just sit in it. (laughs) No, 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 no. I am not cool (laughs) with my consciousness, right? You either subvert it through the use of drugs and alcohol, put it down, put the consciousness in the cage. Mm. Stifle it. Yeah. Oh, if it gets out, poke it with a stick. Get it back. Get back in the cage, you filthy bugger. Right? And, uh, or you uh, go go up. You're elevated. you up, you know, through education, through meditation, through practice. Right? And that's when the spiritual egotism comes in. You know, a spiritual conceitedness. Right? Like my guru is better than your guru. My practice is better than your practice. My philosophy is better than your philosophy. I hate that it's tiresome but I myself am kind of guilty of it I'm saying yeah all your like software belief systems all of your firmware mind training things let's train the brain the brain is the best way (laughs) (laughs) right and unfortunately I, I have to play the game because we live in a culture of miseducation we live in a culture of misinformation and You know, this, this method that I'm sharing, uh, is the oldest method. Everyone's trying so many things to get around, to find some alternate way to take Xanax, Hmm. take barbiturates, you know, to, you know, jump out of an airplane, you know, so you can get that adrenaline rush.
0: And you're, you're saying it's all in the breath.
1: And I'm just saying, yeah, just sit in your chair, do this breath, do this breath every day for the next 40 days. And I can prove it with a brain scan. If you can, I mean, a brain scan is a very expensive thing. It's like $3,500 for this because insurance won't cover it. Insurance won't pay for an fMRI scan unless you have a traumatic brain injury. And so only for the wealthiest people will they spend 3500 at the beginning, go for 40 days, and then at the end, another 3500 just to verify that, yes, your amygdala has increased in density, right? The paper that I base, you know, basically like, you know, my entire life's work off of at this point was published by this professor Richard Davidson uh, that I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation. Uh, They published this in 2009. And what they did is they um, were trying to measure how quickly you could observe neuroplastic change. Because, I mean, the the yogis that they were testing, 10,000 hours, 20,000 hours, 30,000 hours, like obscene. You know, like you had to dedicate your life to it. But could a normal person achieve benefits from this and in how little time so they just set up this experiment with a the control group was doing uh 30 minutes a day two weeks of cognitive behavioral therapy which uh at the time and i think still to this day in the psychology world is considered the you know gold standard in ptsd treatment right but cbt is basically they traumatize you over and over again until you're desensitized to it uh The the experimental group was doing 30 minutes of the Tonglen meditation, which is the third of the neuroplastic workouts I describe in the book. Um, 30 minutes of this, two weeks, brain scans before and after. In the control group, there was zero neuroplastic activity anywhere in the brain. In the group that was doing this Tonglen Buddhist meditation for 30 minutes for two weeks, 100% of the study participants showed neuroplastic growth and the average growth is 30% in wow. the amygdala region in just two weeks, right? Now, the issue with that is uh, confronted with the neuroscience of habit formation that we talked about in Atomic Habits that um, you know, most New Year's resolutions fail because people try to bite off too much. Uh, that uh, the, in order for a habit to become automatic, such as you know, running for three miles after work every day, Uh, which takes about an hour doing an hour of yoga every day, it can take 250 days for the neurons to grow that cause this behavior to become automatic Mm -hmm. to the point that if you didn't do your hour of yoga, you would feel weird. Mm -hmm. Like I'm at that point now, like I cannot go to sleep if I haven't done not an hour, but like I need to do something or I just like, I can feel my nervous system wigging out. Um, but for a small habit, such as learning to drink more water every day, this can take as little as 20 days, right? So two weeks is 14 days, right? And, and what we're talking about here is not growth in a vacuum. We're talking about growth and maintenance, right? So what this experiment that the Professor Davidson showed was that we can stimulate the growth, the neurons grow, but then after the experiment, all those people just returned back into their normal lives right with this uh the, the mushroom trip that you were talking about how you have like a pr- extreme shift of consciousness right after the trip unless you reinforce that belief system
0: yes that yes.
1: neuron will atrophy back into its natural state i'm so glad you brought this up
0: it's why people have these epiphanies and then they find Don't. that they're backsliding in whatever insights they got you mm-hmm. have to integrate it somehow into your day-to-day life absolutely taking action on it doing the homework from the mushrooms, mm-hmm. whatever it takes to
1: train those neurons. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And the Buddhists, they have an analogy. It's like the, the second you stop meditating, or rather uh, bhavana, uh, mental cultivation, is like rowing a boat upstream. The second you stop rowing, the, car- the river carries you back downstream. It's only natural. It's only natural. So without this um, repetition for the specific number of days, Right, and what you know we have kind of uh, experimentally verified uh, is that you know this this two hundred fifty day thing, it's impossible, right? Like the sonic acupuncture workshop that we're doing at the music festivals, that is an hour long workshop, well forty five to an hour depending on how much explanation I do in between each exercise. Um, if I were to get people to sign up for a program and say like we're gonna do an hour of work every single day and you are going to grow all these regions of the brain so that you will be bulletproof. You will never have to worry about anxiety, depression, PTSD, or addiction. 99% of them will fall off, Mm -hmm. if not 100%, because it's just too much, because their life is not designed to make room for an hour of additional activity on top of their job, their family, their partner, whatever other hobbies they have, Netflix, right? Woodworking, whatever you do. Whatever you do, you've made time to do it. And that's why we begin the atomic habit, 5 minutes a day. Eight eight long slow deep breaths for the eight pillars of joy. You can do that. You can grow that habit and make that permanent. In only forty days, and the approach uses every second day
0: or forty yeah. days consecutively.
1: Well, it's better to do every 40, uh, forty days consecutively, but also in atomic habits, the neuroscience of habit formation, they demonstrated that uh, skipping one day does not negatively impact long- term neural growth. It's the second day that gets you it's the second day that gets you mm-hmm. indeed, so that's why you know, we do it. We meet every other day live just to make sure that you do the homework. But if you miss one day, you're out. Yeah, You can't come back to the rest of the sessions because you're not gonna get the benefit. So there is sort of like this, I don't know, motivation that uh, you know, you, you, we start as a community, we start as a cohort, as a group, and if you miss one day, I'm sorry. You can begin with the next cohort, but by skipping one day, you're missing three days of practice. Yeah. For those that are interested in to check out more information about your work, your book, the 40-day program, where can you send them? Uh, Well, first, I would say find us on Instagram at Don't Punk Out. That's where we do most of the announcements and marketing. And uh, on there, you'll find links to uh, the book website to pre-order it, uh, which is don'tpunkoutbook.com. But for the 40-day training, uh, the organization that's holding all this research, uh, it's called the BEWA, which is the Big Amygdala Energy World Alliance. It's b-a-e-w-a.org. Charles, it's
0: been such a pleasure. Thank you for sharing with us your stories, um, your experiences, your wisdom, and
1: your energy and your presence. Thank you so much, James. And I really hope that we further the mission. Yes. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful world that can be created when through these psychedelic experiences, uh, we can get everyone to check their ego, to see their ego, and begin building it in a positive way. And uh, you know, they—they, they, I think, the war on drugs was a huge kind of side turn for society, where you know, marijuana became the gateway drug to all these dangerous things. But truly, in this next paradigm, mushrooms, psychedelics are the gateway drug to healthy spirituality. I feel that it's it's cuz it's tough honestly. I mean it was my on-ramp. It's, it's a your, great on-ramp. It, it's your on-ramp. Absolutely. It doesn't require you to sit down and do these weird ass breathing exercises. It's you know, very just, friendly. It's very friendly.
0: It's not super intense for a beginner.
1: And once you're there, yeah. you can you don't forget. Yes. And then the knowledge that through these breathing exercises you can get the same experience and in fact with training, an even better trip mm-hmm. that lasts for the rest of your life. Come on. Yeah. We're going to, it's a beautiful time. Thank you so much, James. You're a beautiful human and a beautiful mission. And it's so, it's an honor to be part of your constellation.
0: Thank you, man. Thank you so much. For those listening, you can find us on Spotify, Apple, YouTube. And if you want to join the mission, check it out at 1billionhumans.com. Go check out Charles Morgan's work. I'll have all the links in the show notes. And any last final words to the listener on how they can live an epic aligned life?
1: Never skip Joy Day. Never skip Joy Day. Joy is a habit. Never skip Joy Day. Beautiful. <laughs> cool. Thank you, man. Thank Take you so care. much. Take care. Thank you, everyone.
0: Hey, so if you're still listening and you've made it this far, I want to thank you personally. You are one of the OGs, the true fans of the podcast. Not many people listen to the end, so if you've actually made it this far, I don't take that for granted. I appreciate you so much, and I invite you to reach out to me personally. I'd love to hear what episodes you most enjoyed, what type of topics, and what type of guests you'd love to see in the future. Feel free to message me on Instagram, or you can email me if you sign up to my newsletter, and just hit reply to the welcome email. I'll be sure to read it. Now, if you have a moment to rate the podcast on Apple or Spotify, that would help me out so much. I super appreciate that. And if you haven't yet subscribed to the podcast on YouTube, please do me a favor and go to youtube.com slash at James Zander Tripp. I'm trying to get to 1000 subscribers, so every subscriber counts. One last thing, I have another podcast where I do solo episodes. Mostly about psychedelics, but I also share life lessons and all sorts of insights. So if you search for The Microdose, you can find my second podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And finally, I just launched a mindset course called Unlock God Mode. So in the next audio, you'll hear more details about my course. If you're not interested, feel free to skip to the next episode. Again, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. It means the world to me. Feel free to share this episode with a friend that you think might enjoy it. And I'll see you next week. If you enjoyed this episode, you might enjoy my brand new audio course, Unlock God Mode. Unlock God Mode is a four-week experience where every day you'll get a 15-minute audio lesson that gives you frameworks, tools, and perspectives to upgrade your relationship with life. In the same way that mushrooms give you insights that help you up-level in the video game of life, I designed this course to do the same thing for you. I've compiled every lesson that I learned through psychedelics, through meditation, through my spiritual work, through life. I've put my best tools in this course so that no matter who you are, if you choose to go on this adventure with me, you're going to learn some amazing frameworks you're going to learn to see life with new eyes you will improve your relationship with life and by extension your life will improve if you're interested in more details go to jameszander.com/godmode or use the link in the show notes use the promo code shrooms for a special discount thank you so much for listening to the podcast i deeply appreciate you feel free to reach out to me through my newsletter. Go to jameszander.com to sign up. I'd love to connect. This episode is sponsored by magicmush.ca. If you're looking for an online dispensary for magic mushrooms, mushroom chocolate, and other high-quality psychedelic products, head over to magicmush.ca and use the promo code JAMES to get 25% off. Thank you for listening and have a beautiful trip.